When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part 2, Chapter 19 Two years already, and for two years the colonists had had no communications with their fellow creatures. They were without news from the civilized world, lost on this island, as completely as if they had been on the most minute star of the celestial hemisphere. What was now happening in their country? The picture of their native land was always before their eyes, the land torn by civil war at the time they left it, and which the southern rebellion was perhaps still staining with blood. It was a great sorrow to them, and they often talked together of these things, without ever doubting, however, that the cause of the North must triumph, for the honor of the American Confederation. During these two years not a vessel had passed in sight of the island, or at least not a sail had been seen. It was evident that Lincoln Island was out of the usual track, and also that it was unknown, as was besides proved by the maps, for though there was no port, vessels might have visited it for the purpose of renewing their store of water. But the surrounding ocean was deserted as far as the eye could reach, and the colonists must rely on themselves for regaining their native land. However, one chance of rescue existed, and this chance was discussed one day on the first week of April, when the colonists were gathered together in the dining-room of Granite House. They had been talking of America, of their native country, which they had so little hope of ever seeing again. "'Decidedly we have only one way.' said Spilett, one single way for leaving Lincoln Island, and that is, to build a vessel large enough to sail several hundred miles. It appears to me that when one has built a boat it is just as easy to build a ship. And in which we might go to the Pomatus, added Herbert, just as easily as we went to Tabor Island. I do not say no, replied Pencroft, who had always the casting vote in maritime questions. I do not say no, although it is not exactly the same thing to make a log as a short voyage. If our little craft had been caught in any heavy gale of wind during the voyage to Tabor Island, we should have known that land was at no great distance either way. But twelve hundred miles is a pretty long way, and the nearest land is at least that distance. Would you not in that case, Pencroft, attempt the adventure? asked the reporter. I will attempt anything that is desired, Mr. Spilett, answered the sailor, and you know well that I am not a man to flinch. Remember, besides, that we number another sailor amongst us now, remarked Neb. Who is that? asked Pencroft. Ayrton. If he will consent to come, said Pencroft. Nonsense, returned the reporter. 
Do you think that if Lord Glenarvan's yacht had appeared at Tabor Island while he was still living there, Ayrton would have refused to depart? You forget, my friends, then said Cyrus Harding, that Ayrton was not in possession of his reason during the last years of his stay there. But that is not the question. The point is to know if we may count among our chances of being rescued the return of the Scotch vessel. Now, Lord Glenarvan promised Ayrton that he would return to take him off from Tabor Island when he considered that his crimes were expiated, and I believe that he will return. Yes, said the reporter, and I will add that he will return soon, for it is twelve years since Ayrton was abandoned. Well, answered Pencroft, I agree with you that the nobleman will return, and soon, too. But where will he touch? At Tabor Island, and not at Lincoln Island. That is the more certain, replied Herbert, as Lincoln Island is not even marked on the map. Therefore, my friends, said the engineer, we ought to take the necessary precautions for making our presence, and that of Ayrton on Lincoln Island, known at Tabor Island. Certainly answered the reporter, and nothing is easier than to place in the hut which was Captain Grant's and Ayrton's dwelling, a notice which Lord Glenarvan and his crew cannot help finding, giving the position of our island. "'It is a pity,' remarked the sailor, "'that we forgot to take that precaution on our first visit to Tabor Island.' "'And why should we have done it?' asked Herbert. "'At that time we did not know Ayrton's history.' We did not know that any one was likely to come some day to fetch him, and when we did know his history, the season was too advanced to allow us to return then to Tabor Island. Yes, replied Harding, it was too late, and we must put off the voyage until next spring. But suppose the Scotch yacht comes before that, said Pencroft. That is not probable, replied the engineer for Lord Glenarvan would not choose the winter season to venture into these seas. Either he has already returned to Tabor Island, since Ayrton has been with us, that is to say, during the last five months, and has left again, or he will not come till later, and it will be time enough in the first fine October days to go to Tabor Island and leave a notice there. "'We must allow,' said Neb, that it will be very unfortunate if the Duncan has returned to these parts only a few months ago. I hope that is not so, replied Cyrus Harding, and that heaven has not deprived us of the best chance which remains to us. I think, observed the reporter, that at any rate we shall know what we have to depend on when we have been to Tabor Island, for if the yacht has returned there, they will necessarily have left some traces of their visit. "'That is evident,' answered the engineer. "'So then, my friends, since we have this chance of returning to our country, we must wait patiently, and if it is taken from us we shall see what will be best to do.' "'At any rate,' remarked Pencroft, "'it is well understood that if we do leave Lincoln Island it will not be because we were uncomfortable there.' "'No, Pencroft,' replied the engineer. It will be because we are far from all that a man holds dearest in the world, his family, his friends, his native land. Matters being thus decided, the building of a vessel large enough to sail either to the archipelagos in the north, or to New Zealand in the west, was no longer talked of, 
and they busied themselves in their accustomed occupations, with a view to wintering a third time in Granite House. However, it was agreed that before the stormy weather came on, their little vessel should be employed in making a voyage round the island. A complete survey of the coast had not yet been made, and the colonists had but an imperfect idea of the shore to the west and north, from the mouth of Falls River to the Mandible Capes, as well as of the narrow bay between them, which opened like a shark's jaws. The plan of this excursion was proposed by Pencroft, and Cyrus Harding fully acquiesced in it, for he himself wished to see this part of his domain. The weather was variable, but the barometer did not fluctuate by sudden movements, and they could therefore count on tolerable weather. However, during the first week of April, after a sudden barometrical fall, a renewed rise was marked by a heavy gale of wind, lasting five or six days. Then the needle of the instrument remained stationary at a height of twenty-nine inches and nine-tenths, and the weather appeared propitious for an excursion. The departure was fixed for the 16th of April, and the Bonaventure, anchored in Port Balloon, was provisioned for a voyage which might be of some duration. Cyrus Harding informed Ayrton of the projected expedition, and proposed that he should take part in it. But Ayrton, preferring to remain on shore, it was decided that he should come to Granite House during the absence of his companions. Master Jupe was ordered to keep him company, and made no remonstrance. On the morning of the 16th of April, all the colonists, including Top, embarked. A fine breeze blew from the southwest, and the Bonadventure tacked on leaving Port Balloon so as to reach Reptile End. Of the ninety miles which the perimeter of the island measured, twenty included the south coast between the port and the promontory. The wind being right ahead, it was necessary to hug the shore. It took the whole day to reach the promontory for the vessel on leaving port had only two hours of ebb-tide, and had therefore to make way for six hours against the flood. It was nightfall before the promontory was doubled. The sailor then proposed to the engineer that they should continue sailing slowly, with two reefs in the sail. But Harding preferred to anchor a few cable-links from the shore, so as to survey that part of the coast during the day. It was agreed also that, as they were anxious for a minute exploration of the coast, they should not sail during the night, but would always, when the weather permitted it, be at anchor near the shore. The night was passing under the promontory, and the wind having fallen, nothing disturbed the silence. The passengers, with the exception of the sailor, scarcely slept as well on board the Bonaventure as they would have done in their rooms at Granite House, but they did sleep, however. Pencroft set sail at break of day, and by going on the larboard tack they could keep close to the shore. The colonists knew this beautiful wooded coast, since they had already explored it on foot, and yet it again excited their admiration. They coasted along as close in as possible, so as to notice everything, avoiding always the trunks of trees which floated here and there. Several times, also, they anchored and Gideon Spilett took photographs of the superb scenery. About noon the Bonadventure arrived at the mouth of Falls River. Beyond, on the left bank, a few scattered trees appeared, and three miles further even these dwindled into solitary groups among the western spurs of the mountain, 
whose arid ridge sloped down to the shore. What a contrast between the northern and southern part of the coast! In proportion as one was woody and fertile, so was the other rugged and barren. It might have been designated as one of those iron coasts, as they are called in some countries, and its wild confusion appeared to indicate that a sudden crystallization had been produced in the yet liquid basalt of some distant geological sea. These stupendous masses would have terrified the settlers if they had been cast at first on this part of the island. They had not been able to perceive the sinister aspect of this shore from the summit of Mount Franklin, for they overlooked it from too great a height, but viewed from the sea it presented a wild appearance which could not perhaps be equalled in any corner of the globe. The Bonaventure sailed along this coast for the distance of half a mile. It was easy to see that it was composed of blocks of all sizes, from twenty to three hundred feet in height, and of all shapes, round like towers, prismatic like steeples, pyramidal like obelisks, conical like factory chimneys. An iceberg of the polar seas could not have been more capricious in its terrible sublimity. Here bridges were thrown from one rock to another. There arches like those of a wave, into the depths of which the eye could not penetrate. In one place large vaulted excavations presented a monumental aspect. In another a crowd of columns, spires, and arches such as no Gothic cathedral ever possessed. Every caprice of nature, still more varied than those of the imagination, appeared on this grand coast, which extended over a length of eight or nine miles. Cyrus Harding and his companions gazed, with a feeling of surprise bordering on stupefaction. But although they remained silent, Top, not being troubled with feelings of this sort, uttered barks which were repeated by the thousand echoes of the basaltic cliff. The engineer even observed that these barks had something strange in them, like those which the dog had uttered at the mouth of the well in Granite House. "'Let us go close in,' said he. And the Bonaventure sailed as near as possible to the rocky shore. Perhaps some cave, which it would be advisable to explore, existed there? But Harding saw nothing, not a cavern, not a cleft which could serve as a retreat to any being whatever for the foot of the cliff was washed by the surf. Soon Top's barks ceased, and the vessel continued her course at a few cables' length from the coast. In the northwest part of the island the shore became again flat and sandy. A few trees here and there rose above a low, marshy ground, which the colonists had already surveyed, and in violent contrast to the other desert shore life was again manifested by the presence of myriads of waterfowl. That evening the Bonaventure anchored in a small bay to the north of the island, near the land, such was the depth of water there. The night passed quietly, for the breeze died away with the last light of day, and only rose again with the first streaks of dawn. As it was easy to land, the usual hunters of the colony, that is to say, Herbert and Gideon Spilett, went for a ramble of two hours or so, and returned with several strings of wild duck and snipe. Top had done wonders, and not a bird had been lost, thanks to his zeal and cleverness. At eight o'clock in the morning the Bonaventure set sail, 
and ran rapidly towards North Mandible Cape, for the wind was right astern and freshening rapidly. However, observed Pencroft, I should not be surprised if a gale came up from the west. Yesterday the sun set in a very red-looking horizon, and now, this morning, those mare's tails don't forebode anything good. These mare's tails are cirrus clouds, scattered in the zenith, their height from the sea being less than five thousand feet. They look like light pieces of cotton wool, and their presence usually announces some sudden change in the weather. Well, said Harding, let us carry as much sail as possible, and run for shelter into Shark Gulf. I think that the Bonaventure will be safe there. Perfectly, replied Pencroft, and besides, the north coast is merely sand, very uninteresting to look at. I shall not be sorry, resumed the engineer, to pass not only to-night but to-morrow in that bay, which is worth being carefully explored. I think that we shall be obliged to do so, whether we like it or not, answered Pencroft, for the sky looks very threatening towards the west. Dirty weather is coming on. At any rate, we will have a favourable wind for reaching Cape Mandible, observed the reporter. A very fine wind, replied the sailor. But we must tack to enter the gulf, and I should like to see my way clear in those unknown quarters. Quarters which appear to be filled with rocks, added Herbert. If we judge by what we saw on the south coast of Chart Gulf. Pencroft, said Cyrus Harding, do as you think best. We will leave it to you. Don't make your mind uneasy, Captain, replied the sailor. I shall not expose myself needlessly. I would rather a knife were run into my ribs than a sharp rock into those of my bonadventure. That which Pencroft called ribs was the part of his vessel under water, and he valued it more than his own skin. What o'clock is it? asked Pencroft. Ten o'clock, replied Gideon Spilett. And what distance is it to the Cape, Captain? About fifteen miles, replied the engineer. That's a matter of two hours and a half, said the sailor, and we shall be off the Cape between twelve and one o'clock. Unluckily the tide will be turning at that moment, and will be ebbing out of the gulf. I'm afraid that it will be very difficult to get in, having both wind and tide against us. And the more so that it is a full moon to-day, remarked Herbert, and these April tides are very strong. Well, Pencroft, asked Harding. Can you not anchor off the Cape? Anchor near land with bad weather coming on? exclaimed the sailor. What are you thinking of, Captain? We should run aground of a certainty. What will you do, then? I shall try to keep in the offing until the flood, that is to say, till about seven in the evening, and if there is still light enough I will try to enter the gulf. If not, we must stand off and on during the night, and we will enter to-morrow at sunrise. As I told you, Pencroft, we will leave it to you, answered Harding. Ah, said Pencroft, if there was only a lighthouse on the coast, it would be much more convenient for sailors. Yes, replied Herbert, and this time we shall have no obliging engineer to light a fire to guide us into port. Why, indeed, my dear Cyrus, said Spilett, we have never thanked you, but frankly, without that fire, we should never have been able— A fire! asked Harding, much astonished at the reporter's words. "'We mean, Captain,' answered Pencroft, 
that on board the Bonaventure we were very anxious during the few hours before our return, and we should have passed to windward of the island if it had not been for the precaution you took of lighting a fire the night of 19th of October on Prospect Heights. Yes, yes, that was a lucky idea of mine, replied the engineer. And this time, continued the sailor, unless the idea occurs to Ayrton, there will be no one to do us that little service. No, no one, answered Cyrus Harding. A few minutes after, finding himself alone in the bows of the vessel with the reporter, the engineer bent down and whispered, If there is one thing certain in this world, Spilett, it is that I never lighted any fire during the night of the 19th of October, neither on Prospect Heights nor on any other part of the island. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, Part Two, Chapter Twenty. Things happened as Pencroft had predicted, he being seldom mistaken in his prognostications. The wind rose, and from a fresh breeze it soon increased to a regular gale, that is to say, it acquired a speed of from forty to forty-five miles an hour, before which a ship in the open sea would have run under close-reefed topsails. Now, as it was nearly six o'clock when the Bonaventure reached the gulf, and as at that moment the tide turned, it was impossible to enter. They were therefore compelled to stand off, for even if he had not wished to do so, Pencroft could not have gained the mouth of the Mercy. Hoisting the jib to the mainmast by way of a storm-sail, he hove to, putting the head of the vessel towards the land. Fortunately, although the wind was strong, the sea, being sheltered by the land, did not run very high. They had then little to fear from the waves, which always endanger small craft. The Bonaventure would doubtlessly not have capsized, for she was well ballasted, but enormous masses of water falling on the deck might injure her if her timbers could not sustain them. Pencroft, as a good sailor, was prepared for anything. Certainly he had great confidence in his vessel, but nevertheless he awaited the return of day with some anxiety. During the night Cyrus Harding and Gideon Spilett had no opportunity for talking together, and yet the words pronounced in the reporter's ear by the engineer were well worth being discussed together with the mysterious influence which appeared to reign over Lincoln Island. Gideon Spilett did not cease from pondering over this new and inexplicable incident, the appearance of a fire on the coast of the island. The fire had actually been seen. His companions, Herbert and Pencroft, had seen it with him. The fire had served to signalize the position of the island during that dark night, and they had not doubted that it was lighted by the engineer's hand and here was Cyrus Harding expressly declaring that he had never done anything of the sort. Spilett resolved to recur to this incident as soon as the Bonaventure returned, and to urge Cyrus Harding to acquaint their companions with these strange facts. Perhaps it would be decided to make in common a complete investigation of every part of Lincoln Island. 
However that might be, on this island no fire was lighted on these yet unknown shores, which formed the entrance to the gulf, and the little vessel stood off during the night. When the first streaks of dawn appeared in the western horizon, the wind, which had slightly fallen, shifted two points, and enabled Pencroft to enter the narrow gulf with greater ease. Towards seven o'clock in the morning the Bonadventure, weathering the North Mandible Cape, entered the strait and glided on to the waters so strangely enclosed in the frame of lava. "'Well,' said Pencroft, "'this bay would make admirable roads, in which a whole fleet could lie at their ease.' "'What is especially curious,' observed Harding, "'is that the gulf has been formed by two rivers of lava thrown out by the volcano, and accumulated by successive eruptions.' The result is that the gulf is completely sheltered on all sides, and I believe that even in the stormiest weather the sea here must be as calm as a lake. No doubt, returned the sailor, since the wind has only that narrow entrance between the two capes to get in by, and besides the north cape protects that of the south in a way which would make the entrance of guests very difficult. I declare our Bonadventure could stay here from one end of the year to the other without even dragging at her anchor. "'It is rather large for her,' observed the reporter. "'Well, Mr. Spilett,' replied the sailor, "'I agree that it is too large for the Bonadventure, but if the fleets of the Union were in want of a harbour in the Pacific, I don't think they would ever find a better place than this.' "'We are in the shark's mouth,' remarked Neb, alluding to the form of the gulf. "'Right into its mouth, my honest Neb,' replied Herbert. "'But you are not afraid that it will shut upon us, are you?' "'No, Mr. Herbert,' answered Neb. "'And yet this gulf here doesn't please me much. It has a wicked look.' "'Halloo!' cried Pencroft. "'Here is Neb turning up his nose at my gulf, just as I was thinking of presenting it to America.' "'But at any rate, is the water deep enough?' asked the engineer for depth sufficient for the keel of the Bonadventure would not be enough for those of our ironclads. "'That is easily found out,' replied Pencroft. And the sailor sounded with a long cord, which served him as a lead-line, to which was fastened a lump of iron. This cord measured nearly fifty fathoms, and its entire length was enrolled without finding any bottom. "'There!' exclaimed Pencroft. "'Our ironclads can come here, after all.' they would not run aground. "'Indeed,' said Gideon Spilett, "'this gulf is a regular abyss. But, taking into consideration the volcanic origin of the island, it is not astonishing that the sea should offer similar depressions.' "'One would say, too,' observed Herbert, "'that these cliffs were perfectly perpendicular, and I believe that at their foot, even with a line five or six times longer, Pencroft would not find bottom.' "'That is all very well,' then said the reporter. "'But I must point out to Pencroft that his harbour is wanting in one very important respect.' "'And what is that, Mr. Spilett?' "'An opening, a cutting of some sort, to give access to the interior of the island. I do not see a spot on which we could land.' And, in fact, the steep lava cliffs did not afford a single place suitable for landing they formed an insuperable barrier, recalling, but with more wildness, the fjords of Norway. The Bonadventure, coasting as close as possible along the cliffs, 
did not discover even a projection which would allow the passengers to leave the deck. Pencroft consoled himself by saying that with the help of a mine they could soon open out the cliff when that was necessary, and then, as there was evidently nothing to be done in the gulf, he steered his vessels toward the strait, and passed out at about two o'clock in the afternoon. "'Ah!' said Neb, uttering a sigh of satisfaction. One might really say that the honest negro did not feel at his ease in those enormous jaws. The distance from Mandible Cape to the mouth of the Mercy was not more than eight miles. The head of the Bonaventure was put towards Granite House, and a fair wind filling her sails, she ran rapidly along the coast. To the enormous lava rocks succeeded soon those capricious sand-dunes along which the engineer had been so singularly recovered, and which sea-birds frequented in thousands. About four o'clock, Pencroft, leaving the point of the islet on his left, entered the channel which separated it from the coast, and at five o'clock the anchor of the Bonaventure was buried in the sand at the mouth of the Mercy. The colonists had been absent three days from their dwelling. Ayrton was waiting for them on the beach, and Jup came joyously to meet them, giving vent to deep grunts of satisfaction. A complete exploration of the coast of the island had now been made, and no suspicious appearances had been observed. If any mysterious being resided on it, it could only be under cover of the impenetrable forest of the Serpentine Peninsula, to which the colonists had not yet directed their investigations. Gideon Spilett discussed these things with the engineer, and it was agreed that they should direct the attention of their companions to the strange character of certain incidents which had occurred on the island, and of which the last was the most unaccountable. However, Harding, returning to the fact of a fire having been kindled on the shore by an unknown hand, could not refrain from repeating for the twentieth time to the reporter, "'But are you quite sure of having seen it? Was it not a partial eruption of the volcano, or perhaps some meteor?' "'No, Cyrus,' answered the reporter. "'It was certainly a fire lighted by the hand of man. Besides, question Pencroft and Herbert. They saw it as I saw it myself, and they will confirm my words. In consequence, therefore, a few days after, on the 25th of April, in the evening, when the settlers were all collected on Prospect Heights, Cyrus Harding began by saying, My friends, I think it my duty to call your attention to certain incidents which have occurred in the island, on the subject of which I shall be happy to have your advice. These incidents are, so to speak, supernatural. "'Supernatural!' exclaimed the sailor, emitting a volume of smoke from his mouth. "'Can it be possible that our island is supernatural?' "'No, Pencroft, but mysterious, most certainly,' replied the engineer. "'Unless you can explain that which Spilett and I have until now failed to understand.' "'Speak away, Captain,' answered the sailor. "'Well,' "'Have you understood,' then said the engineer, "'how it was that after falling into the sea I was found a quarter of a mile into the interior of the island, and that without my having any consciousness of my removal there?' "'Unless being unconscious,' said Pencroft, "'that is not admissible,' replied the engineer. "'But to continue. 
Have you understood how Top was able to discover your retreat five miles from the cave in which I was lying?' "'The dog's instinct,' observed Herbert. "'Singular instinct,' returned the reporter. "'Since notwithstanding the storm of rain and wind which was raging during that night, Top arrived at the chimneys, dry and without a speck of mud.' "'Let us continue,' resumed the engineer. "'Have you understood how our dog was so strangely thrown up out of the water of the lake, after his struggle with the dugong?' "'No, I confess not at all,' replied Pencroft. "'And the wound which the dugong had in its side, a wound which seemed to have been made with a sharp instrument, that can't be understood either.' "'Let us continue again,' said Harding. Have you understood, my friends, how that bullet got into the body of the young peccary? How that case happened to be so fortunately stranded, without there being any trace of a wreck? How that bottle containing the document presented itself so opportunely, during our first sea excursion? How our canoe, having broken its moorings, floated down the current of the Mercy, and rejoined us at the very moment we needed it? how, after the ape invasion, the latter was so obligingly thrown down from Granite House, and lastly, how the document, which Ayrton asserts was never written by him, fell into our hands. As Cyrus Harding thus enumerated, without forgetting one, the singular incidents which had occurred in the island, Herbert, Neb, and Pencroft stared at each other, not knowing what to reply. For this succession of incidents, grouped thus for the first time, could not but excite their surprise to the highest degree. "'Pon my word,' said Pencroft at last, "'you are right, Captain, and it is difficult to explain all these things.' "'Well, my friends,' resumed the engineer, "'a last fact has just been added to these, and it is no less incomprehensible than the others.' "'What is it, Captain?' asked Herbert quickly. "'When you were returning from Tabor Island, Pencroft,' continued the engineer, "'you said that a fire appeared on Lincoln Island?' "'Certainly,' answered the sailor. "'And you are quite certain of having seen this fire?' "'As sure as I see you now.' "'You also, Herbert?' "'Why, Captain,' cried Herbert, "'that fire was blazing like a star of the first magnitude.' "'But was it not a star?' urged the engineer. "'No,' replied Pencroft, "'for the sky was covered with thick clouds, and at any rate a star would not have been so low on the horizon. But Mr. Spilett saw it as well as we, and he will confirm our words.' "'I will add,' said the reporter, "'that the fire was very bright, and that it shot up like a shade of lightning.' "'Yes, yes, exactly,' added Herbert and it was certainly placed on the heights of Granite House. "'Well, my friends,' replied Cyrus Harding, "'during the night of the 19th of October, neither Neb nor I lighted any fire on the coast.' "'You did not!' exclaimed Pencroft, in the height of his astonishment, not being able to finish his sentence. "'We did not leave Granite House,' answered Cyrus Harding, "'and if a fire appeared on the coast,' It was lighted by another hand than ours. Pencroft, Herbert, and Neb were stupefied. No illusion could be possible, and a fire had actually met their eyes during the night of the 19th of October, 
Yes, they had to acknowledge it. A mystery existed. An inexplicable influence, evidently favourable to the colonists, but very irritating to their curiosity, was executed always in the nick of time on Lincoln Island. Could there be some being hidden in its profoundest recesses? It was necessary at any cost to ascertain this. Harding also reminded his companions of the singular behaviour of Top and Jup when they prowled round the mouth of the well, which placed Granite House in communication with the sea, and he told them that he had explored the well without discovering anything suspicious. The final resolve taken, in consequence of this conversation, by all the members of the colony, was that as soon as the fine season returned they would thoroughly search the whole of the island. But from that day Pencroft appeared to be anxious. He felt as if the island which he had made his own personal property belonged to him entirely no longer, and that he shared it with another master, to whom, willing or not, he felt subject. Neb and he often talked of those unaccountable things, and both, their natures inclining them to the marvellous, were not far from believing that Lincoln Island was under the dominion of one supernatural power. In the meanwhile, the bad weather came with the month of May, the November of the northern zones. It appeared that the winter would be severe and forward. The preparations for the winter season were therefore commenced without delay. Nevertheless, the colonists were well prepared to meet the winter, however hard it might be. They had plenty of felt clothing, and the musmons, very numerous by this time, had furnished an abundance of wool necessary for the manufacture of this warm material. It is unnecessary to say that Ayrton had been provided with this comfortable clothing. Cyrus Harding proposed that he should come to spend the bad season with them in Granite House, where he would be better lodged than at the corral, and Ayrton promised to do so as soon as the last work at the corral was finished. He did this towards the middle of April. From that time Ayrton shared the common life, and made himself useful on all occasions, but still humble and sad, he never took part in the pleasures of his companions. For the greater part of this, the third winter which the settlers passed in Lincoln Island, they were confined to Granite House. There were many violent storms and frightful tempests, which appeared to shake the rocks to their very foundations. Immense waves threatened to overwhelm the island and certainly any vessel anchored near the shore would have been dashed to pieces. Twice, during one of these hurricanes, the mercy swelled to such a degree as to give reason to fear that the bridges would be swept away, and it was necessary to strengthen those on the shore, which disappeared under the foaming waters, when the sea beat against the beach. It may well be supposed that such storms, comparable to water-spouts in which were mingled rain and snow, would cause great havoc on the plateau of Prospect Heights. The mill and the poultry-yard particularly suffered. The colonists were often obliged to make immediate repairs, without which the safety of the birds would have been seriously threatened. During the worst weather, several jaguars and troops of Quadrumana ventured to the edge of the plateau, and it was always to be feared that the most active and audacious would, urged by hunger, managed to cross the stream, which, besides, when frozen, offered them an easy passage. Plantations and domestic animals would then have been infallibly destroyed, 
without a constant watch, and it was often necessary to make use of the guns to keep those dangerous visitors at a respectful distance. Occupation was not wanting to the colonists, for without reckoning their outdoor cares they had always a thousand plans for the fitting up of Granite House. They had also some fine sporting excursions, which were made during the frost in the vast Tador Marsh. Gideon Spillett and Herbert, aided by Jupe and Top, did not miss a shot in the midst of myriads of wild duck, snipe, teal, and others. The access to these hunting-grounds was easy. Besides, whether they reached them by the road to Port Balloon, after having passed the Mercy Bridge, or by turning the rocks from Flotsam Point, the hunters were never distant from Granite House more than two or three miles. Thus passed the four winter months, which were really rigorous, that is to say, June, July, August, and September. But, in short, Granite House did not suffer much from the inclemency of the weather, and it was the same with the corral, which, less exposed than the plateau, and sheltered partly by Mount Franklin, only received the remains of the hurricanes, already broken by the forests and the high rocks of the shore. The damages there were consequently of small importance, and the activity and skill of Ayrton promptly repaired them, when sometime in October he returned to pass a few days in the corral. During this winter no fresh inexplicable incident occurred. Nothing strange happened, although Pencroft and Neb were on the watch for the most insignificant facts to which they attached any mysterious cause. Top and Jupe themselves no longer growled round the well, or gave any signs of uneasiness. It appeared, therefore, as if the series of supernatural incidents was interrupted, although they often talked of them during the evenings in Granite House, and they remained thoroughly resolved that the island should be searched, even in those parts the most difficult to explore. But an event of the highest importance, and of which the consequences might be terrible, momentarily diverted from their projects Cyrus Harding and his companions. It was the month of October. The fine season was swiftly returning. Nature was reviving, and among the evergreen foliage of the coniferae which formed the border of the wood already appeared the young leaves of the banksias, deodoras, and other trees. It may be remembered that Gideon Spilett and Herbert had, at different times, taken photographic views of Lincoln Island. Now, on the 17th of this month of October, towards three o'clock in the afternoon, Herbert, enticed by the charms of the sky, thought of reproducing Union Bay, which was opposite to Prospect Heights, from Cape Mandible to Claw Cape. The horizon was beautifully clear, and the sea, undulating under a soft breeze, was as calm as the waters of a lake sparkling here and there under the sun's rays. The apparatus had been placed at one of the windows of the dining-room at Granite House, and consequently overlooked the shore and the bay. Herbert proceeded as he was accustomed to do, and the negative obtained, he went away to fix it by means of the chemicals deposited in a dark nook of Granite House. Returning to the bright light, and examining it well, Herbert perceived on his negative an almost imperceptible little spot on the sea horizon. He endeavoured to make it disappear by reiterated washing, but could not accomplish it. "'It is a flaw in the glass,' he thought. 
and then he had the curiosity to examine this flaw with a strong magnifier which he unscrewed from one of the telescopes. But he had scarcely looked at it when he uttered a cry, and the glass almost fell from his hands. Immediately running to the room in which Cyrus Harding then was, he extended the negative and magnifier towards the engineer, pointing out the little spot. Harding examined it. Then, seizing his telescope, he rushed to the window. The telescope, after having slowly swept the horizon, at last stopped on the looked-for spot, and Cyrus Harding, lowering it, pronounced one word only, A VESSEL! And, in fact, a vessel was in sight, off Lincoln Island. End of chapter. This is also end of part two. Next we will begin with part three, The Secret of the Island. Stay tuned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, called The Secret of the Island Chapter One it was now two years and a half since the castaways from the balloon had been thrown on Lincoln Island, and during that period there had been no communication between them and their fellow creatures. Once the reporter had attempted to communicate with the inhabited world by confiding to a bird a letter which contained the secret of their situation, but that was a chance on which it was impossible to reckon seriously. Ayrton alone, under the circumstances which have been related, had come to join the little colony. Now, suddenly, on this day, the 17th of October, other men had unexpectedly appeared in sight of the island on that deserted sea. There could be no doubt about it. A vessel was there. But would she pass on, or would she put into port? In a few hours the colonists would definitely know what to expect. Cyrus Harding and Herbert, having immediately called Gideon Spilett, Pencroft, and Neb into the dining-room of Granite House, told them what had happened. Pencroft, seizing the telescope, rapidly swept the horizon, and stopping on the indicated point, that is to say, on that which had made the almost imperceptible spot on the photographic negative, "'I'm blessed, but it is really a vessel!' he exclaimed in a voice which did not express any great amount of satisfaction. "'Is she coming here?' asked Gideon Spilett. "'Impossible to say anything yet,' answered Pencroft, "'for her rigging alone is above the horizon, and not a bit of her hull can be seen.' "'What is to be done?' asked the lad. "'Wait,' replied Harding. And for a considerable time the settlers remained silent given up to all the thoughts and the emotions, all the fears, all the hopes, which were aroused by this incident, the most important which had occurred since their arrival in Lincoln Island. Certainly the colonists were not in the situation of castaways, abandoned on a sterile islet, constantly contending against a cruel nature for their miserable existence, and incessantly tormented by the longing to return to inhabited countries. Pencroft and Neb, especially, 
who felt themselves at once so happy and so rich, would not have left their island without regret. They were accustomed, besides, to this new life in the midst of the domain which their intelligence had, as it were, civilized. But at any rate this ship brought news from the world, perhaps even from their native land. It was bringing fellow-creatures to them, and it might be conceived how deeply their hearts were moved at the sight. From time to time Pencroft took the glass and rested himself at the window. From thence he very attentively examined the vessel, which was at a distance of twenty miles to the east. The colonists had as yet, therefore, no means of signalizing their presence. A flag would not have been perceived, a gun would not have been heard, a fire would not have been visible. However, it was certain that the island, overtopped by Mount Franklin, could not escape the notice of a vessel's lookout. But why was this ship coming there? Was it simple chance which brought it to that part of the Pacific, where the maps mention no land except Tabor Island, which itself was out of the route, usually followed by vessels from the Polynesian archipelagos, from New Zealand, and from the American coast? To this question, which each one asked himself, a reply was suddenly made by Herbert. "'Can it be the Duncan?' he cried. The Duncan, as has been said, was Lord Glenarvan's yacht, which had left Ayrton on the islet, and which was to return there some day to fetch him. Now the islet was not so far distant from Lincoln Island, but that a vessel, standing for the one, could pass in sight of the other. A hundred and fifty miles only separated them in longitude, and seventy in latitude. "'We must tell Ayrton,' said Gideon Spilett, "'and send for him immediately. He alone can say if it is the Duncan.' This was the opinion of all, and the reporter, going to the telegraphic apparatus which placed the corral in communication with Granite House, sent this telegram, "'Come with all possible speed.' In a few minutes the bell sounded. "'I am coming,' replied Ayrton. Then the settlers continued to watch the vessel. "'If it is the Duncan,' said Herbert, "'Ayrton will recognize her without difficulty, since he sailed on board her for some time.' "'And if he recognizes her,' added Pencroft, "'it will agitate him exceedingly.' "'Yes,' answered Cyrus Harding. "'But now Ayrton is worthy to return on board the Duncan.' and pray heaven that it is indeed Lord Glenarvan's yacht, for I should be suspicious of any other vessel. These are ill-famed seas, and I have always feared a visit from Malay pirates to our island. "'We could defend it!' cried Herbert. "'No doubt, my boy,' answered the engineer, smiling. "'But it would be better not to have to defend it.' "'A useless observation,' said Spilett. Lincoln Island is unknown to navigators, since it is not marked even on the most recent maps. Do you think, Cyrus, that that is a sufficient motive for a ship, finding herself unexpectedly in sight of new land, to try and visit rather than avoid it? Certainly, replied Pencroft. I think so, too, added the engineer. It may even be said that it is the duty of a captain to come and survey any land or island not yet known, and Lincoln Island is in this position. 
"'Well,' said Pencroft, "'suppose this vessel comes and anchors there a few cable-lengths from our island. What shall we do?' This sudden question remained at first without any reply. But Cyrus Harding, after some moments' thought, replied in the calm tone which was usual to him. "'What shall we do, my friends? What we ought to do is this. We will communicate with the ship, we will take our passage on board her, and we will leave our island, after having taken possession of it in the name of the United States. Then we will return with any who may wish to follow us to colonize it definitely, and endow the American Republic with a useful station in this part of the Pacific Ocean.' "'Hurrah!' exclaimed Pencroft. "'And that will be no small present which we shall make to our country. The colonization is already almost finished. Names are given to every part of the island. There is a natural port, fresh water, roads, a telegraph, a dockyard, and manufactories, and there will be nothing to be done but to inscribe Lincoln Island on the maps.' "'But if any one seizes it in our absence,' observed Gideon Spilett. "'Hang it!' cried the sailor. "'I would rather remain all alone to guard it, and trust to Pencroft. They shouldn't steal it from him, like a watch from the pocket of a swell.' For an hour it was impossible to say with any certainty whether the vessel was or was not standing towards Lincoln Island. She was nearer, but in what direction was she sailing?' This Pencroft could not determine. However, as the wind was blowing from the northeast, in all probability the vessel was sailing on the starboard tack. Besides, the wind was favourable for bringing her towards the island, and, the sea being calm, she would not be afraid to approach, although the shallows were not marked on the chart. Towards four o'clock, an hour after he had been sent for, Ayrton arrived at Granite House. He entered the dining-room, saying, "'At your service, gentlemen.' Cyrus Harding gave him his hand, as was his custom to do, and leading him to the window. "'Ayrton,' said he, "'we have begged you to come here for an important reason. A ship is in sight of the island.' Ayrton at first paled slightly, and for a moment his eyes became dim. Then, leaning out the window, he surveyed the horizon, but could see nothing. "'Take this telescope,' said Spilett, "'and look carefully, Ayrton, for it is possible that this ship may be the Duncan, come to these seas for the purpose of taking you home again.' "'The Duncan,' murmured Ayrton. "'Already?' This last word escaped Ayrton's lips as if involuntarily, and his head drooped upon his hands. Did not twelve years' solitude on a desert island appear to him a sufficient expiation? Did not the penitent yet feel himself pardoned, either in his own eyes or in the eyes of others? No, said he. No, it can cannot be the Duncan. Look, Ayrton, then said the engineer, for it is necessary that we should know beforehand what to expect. Ayrton took the glass, and pointed it in the direction indicated. During some minutes he examined the horizon without moving, without uttering a word. Then— "'It is indeed a vessel,' said he. "'But I do not think she is the Duncan.' "'Why do you not think so?' asked Gideon Spilett. 
"'Because the Duncan is a steam-yacht, and I cannot perceive any trace of smoke either above or near that vessel.' "'Perhaps she is simply sailing,' observed Pencroft. "'The wind is favourable for the direction which she appears to be taking, and she may be anxious to economise her coal, being so far from land.' "'It is possible that you may be right, Mr. Pencroft,' answered Ayrton, "'and that the vessel has extinguished her fires. We must wait until she is nearer, and then we shall know what to expect.' So saying, Ayrton sat down in a corner of the room and remained silent. The colonists again discussed the strange ship, but Ayrton took no part in the conversation. All were in such a mood that they found it impossible to continue their work. Gideon Spilett and Pencroft were particularly nervous, going, coming, not able to remain still in one place. Herbert felt more curiosity. Neb alone maintained his usual calm manner. Was not his country that where his master was? As to the engineer, he remained plunged in deep thought and in his heart feared rather than desired the arrival of the ship. In the meanwhile, the vessel was a little nearer the island. With the aid of the glass, it was ascertained that she was a brig, and not one of those Malay proas, which are generally used by the pirates of the Pacific. It was, therefore, reasonable to believe that the engineer's apprehensions would not be justified, and that the presence of this vessel in the vicinity of the island was fraught with no danger. Pencroft, after a minute examination, was able positively to affirm that the vessel was rigged as a brig, and that she was standing obliquely towards the coast, on the starboard tack, under her topsails and top-gallant sails. This was confirmed by Ayrton. But by continuing in this direction she must soon disappear behind Claw Cape, as the wind was from the southwest and to watch her it would be then necessary to ascend the heights of Washington Bay, near Port Balloon, a provoking circumstance, for it was already five o'clock in the evening, and the twilight would soon make any observation extremely difficult. "'What shall we do when night comes on?' asked Gideon Spilett. "'Shall we light a fire, so as to signal our presence on the coast?' This was a serious question. And yet, although the engineer still retained some of his presentiments, it was answered in the affirmative. During the night the ship might disappear and leave forever, and, this ship gone, would another ever return to the waters of Lincoln Island? Who could foresee what the future would then have in store for the colonists? "'Yes,' said the reporter, "'we ought to make known to that vessel, whoever she may be, that the island is inhabited. To neglect the opportunity which is offered to us might be to create everlasting regrets. It was therefore decided that Neb and Pencroft should go to Port Balloon, and that there at nightfall they should light an immense fire, the blaze of which would necessarily attract the attention of the brig. But at the moment when Neb and the sailor were preparing to leave Granite House, the vessel suddenly altered her course and stood directly for Union Bay. The brig was a good sailor, for she approached rapidly. Neb and Pencroft put off their departure, therefore, and the glass was put into Ayrton's hands, that he might ascertain for certain 
whether the ship was or was not the duncan the scotch yacht was also rigged as a brig the question was whether a chimney could be discerned between the two masts of the vessel which was now at a distance of only five miles the horizon was still very clear the examination was easy and ayrton soon let the glass fall again saying it is not the duncan it could not be pencroft again brought the brig within the range of the telescope and could see that she was of between three and four hundred tons burden wonderfully narrow well masted admirably built and must be a very rapid sailor but to what nation did she belong that was difficult to say and yet added the sailor a flag is floating from her peak but i cannot distinguish the colors of it in half an hour we shall be certain about that answered the reporter besides it is very evident that the intention of the captain of this ship is to land and consequently if not to-day to-morrow at the latest we shall make his acquaintance never mind said pencroft it is best to know whom we have to deal with and i shall not be sorry to recognize that fellow's colors and while thus speaking the sailor never left the glass the day began to fade and with the day the breeze fell also the brig's ensign hung in folds and it became more and more difficult to observe it it is not the american flag said pencroft from time to time nor the english the red of which could be easily seen nor the french or german colors nor the white flag of russia nor the yellow of spain one would say it was all one color let's see in these seas what do we generally meet with the chilean flag but that is tricolor brazilian it is green japanese it is yellow and black while this at that moment the breeze blew out the unknown flag ayrton seizing the telescope which the sailor had put down put it to his eye and in a hoarse voice the black flag he exclaimed and indeed the sombre bunting was floating from the mast of the brig and they had now good reason for considering her to be a suspicious vessel had the engineer then been right in his presentiments was this a pirate vessel did she scour the pacific competing with the malay proas which still infest it for what had she come to look at the shores of lincoln island was it to them an unknown island ready to become a magazine for stolen cargoes had she come to find on the coast a sheltered port for the winter months was the settler's honest domain destined to be transformed into an infamous refuge the headquarters of the piracy of the pacific all these ideas instinctively presented themselves to the colonists imaginations there was no doubt besides of the signification which must be attached to the color of the hoisted flag it was that of pirates it was that which the duncan would have carried had the convicts succeeded in their criminal design no time was lost before discussing it my friends said cyrus harding perhaps this vessel only wishes to survey the coast of the island perhaps her crew will not land there is a chance of it however that may be we ought to do everything we can to hide our presence here the windmill on prospect heights is too easily seen 
let Ayrton and Neb go and take down the sails. We must also conceal the windows of Granite House with thick branches. All the fires must be extinguished, so that nothing may betray the presence of men on the island. "'And our vessel?' said Herbert. "'Oh,' answered Pencroft, "'she is sheltered in Port Balloon, and I defy any of those rascals there to find her.' The engineer's orders were immediately executed. Neb and Ayrton ascended the plateau, and took the necessary precautions to conceal any indication of a settlement. While they were thus occupied, their companions went to the border of Jacamar Wood, and brought back a large quantity of branches and creepers, which would at some distance appear as natural foliage, and thus disguise the windows in the granite cliff. At the same time the ammunition and guns were placed ready so to be at hand in case of an unexpected attack. When all these precautions had been taken, "'My friends,' said Harding, and his voice betrayed some emotion, "'if the wretches endeavoured to seize Lincoln Island, we shall defend it, shall we not?' "'Yes, Cyrus,' replied the reporter, "'and if necessary we will die to defend it.' The engineer extended his hand to his companions, who pressed it warmly. Ayrton remained in his corner, not joining the colonists. Perhaps he, the former convict, still felt himself unworthy to do so. Cyrus Harding understood what was passing in Ayrton's mind, and going to him, "'And you, Ayrton,' he asked, "'what will you do?' "'My duty,' answered Ayrton. He then took up his station near the window and gazed through the foliage. It was now half-past seven. The sun had disappeared twenty minutes ago behind Granite House. Consequently the eastern horizon was becoming obscured. In the meanwhile the brig continued to advance towards Union Bay. She was now not more than two miles off, and exactly opposite the plateau of Prospect Heights, for after having tacked off Claw Cape she had drifted towards the north in the current of the rising tide. One might have said that at this distance she had already entered the vast bay, for a straight line drawn from Claw Cape to Cape Mandible would have rested on her starboard quarter. Was the brig about to penetrate far into the bay? That was the first question. When once in the bay would she anchor there? That was the second. Would she not content herself with only surveying the coast, and stand out to sea again without landing her crew? They would know this in an hour. The colonists could do nothing but wait. Cyrus Harding had not seen the suspected vessel hoist the black flag without deep anxiety. Was it not a direct menace against the work which he and his companions had till then conducted so successfully? Had these pirates, for the sailors of the brig could be nothing else, already visited the island? since on approaching it they had hoisted their colours. Had they formally invaded it, so that certain unaccountable peculiarities might be explained in this way? Did there exist in the as yet unexplored parts some accomplice ready to enter into communication with them? To all these questions which he mentally asked himself, Harding knew not what to reply, but he felt that the safety of the colony could not but be seriously threatened by the arrival of the brig. However, he and his companions were determined 
to fight to the last gasp. It would have been very important to know if the pirates were numerous and better armed than the colonists. But how was this information to be obtained? Night fell. The new moon had disappeared. Profound darkness enveloped the island and the sea. No light could pierce through the heavy piles of clouds on the horizon. The wind had died away completely with the twilight. Not a leaf rustled on the trees, not a ripple murmured on the shore. Nothing could be seen of the ship, all her lights being extinguished, and as she was still in sight of the island, her whereabouts could not be discovered. "'Well, who knows?' said Pencroft. "'Perhaps that cursed craft will stand off during the night, and we shall see nothing of her at daybreak.' As if in reply to the sailor's observation, a bright light flashed in the darkness, and a cannon-shot was heard. The vessel was still there, and had guns on board. Six seconds elapsed between the flash and the report. Therefore the brig was about a mile and a quarter from the coast. At the same time the chains were heard rattling through the hawse-holes. The vessel had just anchored in sight of Granite House. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part Three, Chapter Two There was no longer any doubt as to the pirates' intentions. They had dropped anchor at a short distance from the island, and it was evident that the next day, by means of their boats, they purposed to land on the beach. Cyrus Harding and his companions were ready to act, but, determined though they were, they must not forget to be prudent. Perhaps their presence might still be concealed in the event of the pirates contenting themselves with landing on the shore, without examining the interior of the island. It might be, indeed, that their only intention was to obtain fresh water from the Mercy, and it was not impossible that the bridge, thrown across a mile and a half from the mouth, and the manufactory at the chimneys, might escape their notice. But why was that flag hoisted at the brig's peak? What was that shot fired for? Pure bravado, doubtless, unless it was a sign of the act of taking possession. Harding knew now that the vessel was well armed. And what had the colonists of Lincoln Island to reply to the pirates' guns? A few muskets only. However, observed Cyrus Harding, here we are in an impregnable position. The enemy cannot discover the mouth of the outlet, now that it is hidden under reeds and grass, and consequently it would be impossible for them to penetrate into Granite House. "'But our plantations, our poultry-yard, our corral, all, everything!' exclaimed Pencroft, stamping his foot. "'They may spoil everything, destroy everything, in a few hours!' "'Everything, Pencroft,' answered Harding, "'and we have no means of preventing them.' "'Are they numerous? That is the question,' said the reporter. "'If they are not more than a dozen, we shall be able to stop them. But forty, fifty, more, perhaps!' Captain Harding, 
then said Ayrton, advancing towards the engineer, "'Will you give me leave?' "'For what, my friend?' to go to that vessel to find out the strength of her crew. But Ayrton, answered the engineer, hesitating, you will risk your life. Why not, sir? That is more than your duty. I have more than my duty to do, replied Ayrton. Will you go to the ship in the boat? asked Gideon Spilett. No, sir, but I, I will swim a boat would be seen where a man may glide between wind and water. "'Do you know that the brig is a mile and a quarter from the shore?' said Herbert. "'I am a good swimmer, Mr. Herbert.' "'I tell you it is risking your life,' said the engineer. "'That is no matter,' answered Ayrton. "'Captain Harding, I ask this as a favour. Perhaps it will be a means of raising me in my own eyes.' "'Go, Ayrton,' replied the engineer, who felt sure that a refusal would have deeply wounded the former convict, now become an honest man. "'I will accompany you,' said Pencroft. "'You mistrust me,' said Ayrton quickly, then more humbly. "'Alas!' "'No, no!' exclaimed Harding with animation. "'No, Ayrton! Pencroft does not mistrust you. You interpret his words wrongly.' "'Indeed,' returned the sailor. "'I only propose to accompany Ayrton as far as the islet. "'It may be, although it is scarcely possible, "'that one of these villains has landed, "'and in that case two men will not be too many "'to hinder him from giving the alarm. "'I will wait for Ayrton on the islet, "'and he shall go alone to the vessel, "'since he is proposed to do so.' "'These things agreed to, "'Ayrton made preparations for his departure. "'His plan was bold.' but it might succeed, thanks to the darkness of the night. Once arrived at the vessel's side, Ayrton, holding on to the main chains, might reconnoitre the number, and perhaps overhear the intentions of the pirates. Ayrton and Pencroft, followed by their companions, descended to the beach. Ayrton undressed and rubbed himself with grease, so as to suffer less from the temperature of the water, which was still cold. He might indeed be obliged to remain in it, for several hours. Pencroft and Neb, during this time, had gone to fetch the boat, moored a few hundred feet higher up on the bank of the Mercy, and by the time they returned, Ayrton was ready to start. A coat was thrown over his shoulders, and the settlers all came round him to press his hand. Ayrton then shoved off with Pencroft in the boat. It was half-past ten in the evening when the two adventurers disappeared in the darkness. Their companions returned to wait at the chimneys. The channel was easily traversed, and the boat touched the opposite shore of the islet. This was not done without precaution, for fear lest the pirates might be roaming about there. But after a careful survey it was evident that the islet was deserted. Ayrton then, followed by Pencroft, crossed it with a rapid step, scaring the birds nestled in the holes in the rocks. Then. Without hesitating, he plunged into the sea, and swam noiselessly in the direction of the ship, in which a few lights had recently appeared, showing her exact situation. As to Pencroft, he crouched down in a cleft of the rock, and awaited the return of his companion. In the meanwhile, Ayrton, swimming with a vigorous stroke, 
glided through the sheet of water without producing the slightest ripple. His head just emerged above it, and his eyes were fixed on the dark hull of the brig, from which the lights were reflected in the water. He thought only of the duty which he had promised to accomplish, and nothing of the danger which he ran, not only on board the ship, but in the sea, often frequented by sharks. The current bore him along, and he rapidly receded from the shore. Half an hour afterwards, Ayrton, without having been either seen or heard, arrived at the ship, and caught hold of the main chains. He took breath then, hoisting himself up, he managed to reach the extremity of the cutwater. There were drying several pairs of sailors' trousers. He put on a pair. Then, settling himself firmly, he listened. They were not sleeping on board the brig. On the contrary, they were talking, singing, laughing. And these were the sentences, accompanied with oaths, which principally struck Ayrton. "'Our brig is a famous acquisition!' She sails well, and merits her name of the Speedy. She would show all the navy of Norfolk a clean pair of heels. Hurrah for her captain! Hurrah for Bob Harvey! What Ayrton felt when he overheard this fragment of conversation may be understood when it is known that in this Bob Harvey he recognized one of his old Australian companions, a daring sailor, who had continued his criminal career. Bob Harvey had seized, on the shores of Norfolk Island, this brig, which was loaded with arms, ammunition, utensils, and tools of all sorts, destined for one of the Sandwich Islands. All his gang had gone on board, and pirates, after having been convicts, these wretches, more ferocious than the Malays themselves, scoured the Pacific, destroying vessels and massacring their crews. The convicts spoke loudly. They recounted their deeds, drinking deeply at the same time. And this is what Ayrton gathered. The actual crew of the Speedy was composed solely of English prisoners, escaped from Norfolk Island. Here it may be well to explain what this island was. In 29 degrees 2 minutes south latitude, and 165 degrees 42 minutes east longitude, to the east of Australia, is found a little island, six miles in circumference, overlooked by Mount Pitt, which rises to a height of eleven hundred feet above the level of the sea. This is Norfolk Island, once the seat of an establishment in which were lodged the most intractable convicts from the English penitentiaries. They numbered five hundred, under an iron discipline, threatened with terrible punishments, and were guarded by one hundred and fifty soldiers and one hundred and fifty employed under the orders of the governor. It would be difficult to imagine a collection of greater ruffians. Sometimes, although very rarely, notwithstanding the extreme surveillance of which they were the object, many managed to escape, and, seizing vessels which they surprised, they infested the Polynesian archipelagos. Thus had Bob Harvey and his companions done. Thus had Ayrton formerly wished to do. Bob Harvey had seized the brig Speedy, anchored in sight of Norfolk Island. The crew had been massacred, and for a year this ship had scoured the Pacific, under the command of Harvey, now a pirate, and well known to Ayrton. The convicts were, for the most part, assembled under the poop, 
but a few stretched on the deck were talking loudly. The conversations still continued amid shouts and libations. Ayrton learned that chance alone had brought the Speedy in sight of Lincoln Island. Bob Harvey had never yet set foot on it. But, as Cyrus Harding had conjectured, finding this unknown land in his course, its position being marked on no chart, he had formed the project of visiting it, and, if he found it suitable, of making it the brig's headquarters. As to the black flag hoisted at the Speedy's peak, and the gun which had been fired, in imitation of men of war when they lower their colors, it was pure piratical bravado. It was in no way a signal, and no communication yet existed between the convicts and Lincoln Island. The settlers' domain was now menaced with terrible danger. Evidently the island, with its water, its harbor, its resources of all kinds so increased in value by the colonists, and the concealment afforded by Granite House, could not but be convenient for the convicts. In their hands it would become an excellent place of refuge, and, being unknown, it would assure them, for a long time perhaps, impunity and security. Evidently, also, the lives of the settlers would not be respected, and Bob Harvey and his accomplices first care would be to massacre them without mercy. Harding and his companions had, therefore, not even the choice of flying and hiding themselves in the island, since the convicts intended to reside there, and since, in the event of the speedy departing on an expedition, it was probable that some of the crew would remain on shore, so as to settle themselves there. Therefore it would be necessary to fight, to destroy every one of these scoundrels, unworthy of pity, and against whom any means would be right. So thought Ayrton, and he well knew that Cyrus Harding would be of his way of thinking. But was resistance, and in the last place, victory, possible? That would depend on the equipment of the brig, and the number of men which she carried. This Ayrton resolved learn at any cost, and as an hour after his arrival the vociferations had begun to die away, and as a large number of the convicts were already buried in a drunken sleep, Ayrton did not hesitate to venture on to the Speedy's deck, which the extinguished lanterns now left in total darkness. He hoisted himself on to the cutwater, and by the bowsprit arrived at the forecastle. Then, gliding among the convicts stretched here and there, he made the round of the ship, and found that the Speedy carried four guns, which would throw shot of from eight to ten pounds in weight. He found also, on touching them, that these guns were breech-loaders. They were, therefore, of modern make, easily used, and of terrible effect. As to the men lying on the deck, they were about ten in number but it was to be supposed that more were sleeping down below. Besides, by listening to them, Ayrton had understood that there were fifty on board. That was a large number for the six settlers of Lincoln Island to contend with. But now, thanks to Ayrton's devotion, Cyrus Harding would not be surprised. He would know the strength of his adversaries, and would make his arrangements accordingly. There was nothing more for Ayrton to do but to return and rendered to his companions an account of the mission with which he had charged himself, and he prepared to regain the bows of the brig so that he might let himself down into the water. 
but to this man whose wish was, as he had said, to do more than his duty, there came an heroic thought. This was to sacrifice his own life, but save the island and the colonists. Cyrus Harding evidently could not resist fifty ruffians, all well armed, who, either by penetrating by main force into Granite House, or by starving out the besieged, could obtain from them what they wanted. And then he thought of his preservers, those who had made him again a man, and an honest man, those to whom he owed all, murdered without pity, their works destroyed, their island turned into a pirate's den. He said to himself that he, Ayrton, was the principal cause of so many disasters, since his old companion, Bob Harvey, had but realized his own plans, and a feeling of horror took possession of him. Then he was seized with an irresistible desire to blow up the brig, and with her all whom she had on board. He would perish in the explosion, but he would have done his duty. Ayrton did not hesitate. To reach the powder-room, which is always situated in the after-part of a vessel, was easy. There would be no want of powder in a vessel which followed such a trade, and a spark would be enough to destroy it in an instant. Ayrton stole carefully along the between-decks, strewn with numerous sleepers, overcome more by drunkenness than sleep. A lantern was lighted at the foot of the mainmast, around which was hung a gun-rack, furnished with weapons of all sorts. Ayrton took a revolver from the rack, and assured himself that it was loaded and primed. Nothing more was needed to accomplish the work of destruction. He then glided towards the stern, so as to arrive under the brig's poop at the powder magazine. It was difficult to proceed along the dimly lighted deck without stumbling over some half-sleeping convict, who retorted by oaths and kicks. Ayrton was therefore more than once obliged to halt, but at last he arrived at the partition dividing the after-cabin, and found the door opening into the magazine itself. Ayrton, compelled to force it open, set to work. It was a difficult operation to perform without noise, for he had to break a padlock. But under his vigorous hand the padlock broke, and the door was open. At that moment a hand was laid on Ayrton's shoulder. "'What are you doing here?' asked a tall man, in a harsh voice, who, standing in the shadow, quickly threw the light of a lantern on Ayrton's face. Ayrton drew back. In the rapid flash of the lantern he had recognized his former accomplice, Bob Harvey, who could not have known him, as he must have thought Ayrton long since dead. "'What are you doing here?' again said Bob Harvey, seizing Ayrton by the waistband. But Ayrton, without replying, wrenched himself from his grasp, and attempted to rush into the magazine. A shot fired into the midst of the powder-casks, and all would be over. "'Help, lads!' shouted Bob Harvey. Had his shout two or three pirates awoke, jumped up, and, rushing on Ayrton, endeavoured to throw him down. He soon extricated himself from their grasp. He fired his revolver, and two of the convicts fell, but a blow from a knife which he could not ward off made a gash in his shoulder. Ayrton perceived that he could no longer hope to carry out his project. Bob Harvey had reclosed the door of the powder magazine, 
and a movement on the deck indicated a general awakening of the pirates. Ayrton must reserve himself to fight at the side of Cyrus Harding. There was nothing for him but flight. But was flight still possible? It was doubtful, yet Ayrton resolved to dare everything in order to rejoin his companions. Four barrels of the revolver were still undischarged. Two were fired. One, aimed at Bob Harvey, did not wound him, or at any rate only slightly, and Ayrton, profiting by the momentary retreat of his adversaries, rushed towards the companion-ladder to gain the deck. Passing before the lantern, he smashed it with a blow from the butt of his revolver. A profound darkness ensued, which favoured his flight. Two or three pirates, awakened by the noise, were descending the ladder at the same moment. A fifth shot from Ayrton laid one low, and the others drew back, not understanding what was going on. Ayrton was on deck in two bounds, and three seconds later, having discharged his last barrel in the face of a pirate who was about to seize him by the throat, he leaped over the bulwarks into the sea. Ayrton had not made six strokes before shots were splashing around him like hail. What were Pencroft's feelings, sheltered under a rock on the islet? What were those of Harding, the reporter, Herbert, and Neb, crouched in the chimneys when they heard the reports on board the brig? They rushed out on to the beach, and their guns shouldered, they stood ready to repel any attack. They had no doubt about it themselves. Ayrton, surprised by the pirates, had been murdered, and perhaps the wretches would profit by the night to make a descent on the island. Half an hour was passed in terrible anxiety. The firing had ceased, and yet neither Ayrton nor Pencroft had reappeared. Was the islet invaded? Ought they not to fly to the help of Ayrton and Pencroft? But how? The tide being high at that time rendered the channel impassable. The boat was not there. We may imagine the horrible anxiety which took possession of Harding and his companions. At last, towards half-past twelve, a boat carrying two men touched the beach. It was Ayrton, slightly wounded in the shoulder, and Pencroft, safe and sound, whom their friends received with open arms. All immediately took refuge in the chimneys. There Ayrton recounted all that had passed, even to his plan for blowing up the brig, which he had attempted to put into execution. All hands were extended to Ayrton, who did not conceal from them that their situation was serious. The pirates had been alarmed. They knew that Lincoln Island was inhabited. They would land upon it in numbers and well armed. They would respect nothing. Should the settlers fall into their hands, they must expect no mercy. "'Well, we shall know how to die,' said the reporter. "'Let us go in and watch,' answered the engineer. "'Have we any chance of escape, Captain?' asked the sailor. "'Yes, Pencroft.' "'Huh! Uh, six against fifty. "'Yes, six, without counting. "'Who?' asked Pencroft. Cyrus did not reply, but pointed upwards. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 
This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, Part Three, Chapter Three. The night passed without incident. The colonists were on the qui vive, and did not leave their post at the chimneys. The pirates on their side did not appear to have made any attempt to land. Since the last shots fired at Ayrton, not a report, not even a sound, had betrayed the presence of the brig in the neighborhood of the island. It might have been fancied that she had weighed anchor, thinking that she had to deal with her match, and had left the coast. But it was no such thing, and when day began to dawn the settlers could see a confused mass through the morning mist. It was the Speedy. "'These, my friends,' said the engineer, "'are the arrangements which appear to me best to make before the fog completely clears away. It hides us from the eyes of the pirates, and we can act without attracting their attention. The most important thing is that the convicts should believe that the inhabitants of the island are numerous, and consequently capable of resisting them. I therefore propose that we divide into three parties, the first of which shall be posted at the chimneys, the second at the mouth of the Mercy. As to the third, I think it would be best to place it on the islet, so as to prevent, or at all events delay, any attempt at landing. We have the use of two rifles and four muskets. Each of us will be armed, and as we are amply provided with powder and shot, we need not spare our fire. We have nothing to fear from the muskets, nor even from the guns of the brig. What can they do against these rocks? And as we shall not fire from the windows of Granite House, the pirates will not think of causing irreparable damage by throwing shell against it. What is to be feared is the necessity of meeting hand to hand, since the convicts have numbers on their side. We must therefore try to prevent them from landing but without discovering ourselves. Therefore, do not economize the ammunition. Fire often, but with a sure aim. We have each eight or ten enemies to kill, and they must be killed. Cyrus Harding had clearly represented their situation, although he spoke in the calmest voice, as if it was a question of directing a piece of work and not ordering a battle. His companions approved these arrangements without even uttering a word. There was nothing more to be done but for each to take his place before the fog should be completely dissipated. Neb and Pencroft immediately ascended to Granite House and brought back a sufficient quantity of ammunition. Gideon Spilett and Ayrton, both very good marksmen, were armed with the two rifles, which carried nearly a mile. The four other muskets were divided among Harding, Neb, Pegcroft and Herbert. The posts were arranged in the following manner. Cyrus Harding and Herbert remained in ambush at the chimneys, thus commanding the shore to the foot of Granite House. Gideon Spilett and Neb crouched among the rocks at the mouth of the Mercy, from which the drawbridges had been raised, so as to prevent any one from crossing in a boat or landing on the opposite shore. As to Ayrton and Pencroft, they shoved off in the boat, and prepared to cross the channel, and to take up two separate stations on the islet. In this way, shots being fired from four different points at once, the convicts would be led to believe that the island was both largely peopled and strongly defended. In the event of a landing being effected without their having been able to prevent it, and also if they saw that they were on the point of being cut off by the brig's boat, 
Ayrton and Pencroft were to return in their boat to the shore and proceed towards the threatened spot. Before starting to occupy their posts, the colonists for the last time wrung each other's hands. Pencroft succeeded in controlling himself sufficiently to suppress his emotion when he embraced Herbert, his boy, and then they separated. In a few moments Harding and Herbert on one side, the reporter and Neb on the other, had disappeared behind the rocks, and five minutes later Ayrton and Pencroft, having without difficulty crossed the channel, disembarked on the islet and concealed themselves in the clefts of its eastern shore. None of them could have been seen, for they themselves could scarcely distinguish the brig in the fog. It was half-past six in the morning. Soon the fog began to clear away, and the topmasts of the brig issued from the vapour. For some minutes great masses rolled over the surface of the sea. Then a breeze sprang up, which rapidly dispelled the mists. The Speedy now appeared in full view, with a spring on her cable, her head to the north, presenting her larboard side to the island. Just as Harding had calculated, she was not more than a mile and a quarter from the coast. The sinister black flag floated from the peak. The engineer, with his telescope, could see that the four guns on board were pointed at the island. They were evidently ready to fire at a moment's notice. In the meanwhile the Speedy remained silent. About thirty pirates could be seen moving on the deck. A few more on the poop, two others posted in the shrouds and armed with spy-glasses, were attentively surveying the island. Certainly Bob Harvey and his crew would not be able easily to give an account of what had happened during the night on board the brig. Had this half-naked man, who had forced the door of the powder magazine, and with whom they had struggled, who had six times discharged his revolver at them, who had killed one and wounded two others, escaped their shot? Had he been able to swim to shore? Whence did he come? What had been his object? Had his design really been to blow up the brig, as Bob Harvey had thought? All this must be confused enough to the convicts' minds. But what they could no longer doubt was that the unknown island before which the Speedy had cast anchor was inhabited, and that there was, perhaps, a numerous colony ready to defend it. And yet no one was to be seen, neither on the shore nor on the heights. The beach appeared to be absolutely deserted. At any rate there was no trace of dwellings. Had the inhabitants fled into the interior? Thus probably the pirate captain reasoned, and doubtless, like a prudent man, he wished to reconnoitre the locality before he allowed his men to venture there. During an hour and a half, no indication of attack or landing could be observed on board the brig. Evidently Bob Harvey was hesitating. Even with his strongest telescopes he could not have perceived one of the settlers crouched among the rocks. It was not even probable that his attention had been awakened by the screen of green branches and creepers hiding the windows of Granite House, and showing rather conspicuously on the bare rock. Indeed, how could he imagine that a dwelling was hollowed out at that height in the solid granite? From Claw Cape to the Mandible Capes, in all the extent of Union Bay, there was nothing to lead him to suppose that the island was or could be inhabited. At eight o'clock, however, 
the colonists observed a movement on board the Speedy. A boat was lowered, and seven men jumped into her. They were armed with muskets. One took the yoke lines, four others the oars, and the two others, kneeling in the bows, ready to fire, reconnoitred the island. Their object was no doubt to make an examination, but not to land, for in the latter case they would have come in larger numbers. The pirates from their lookout could have seen that the coast was sheltered by an islet, separated from it by a channel half a mile in width. However, it was soon evident to Cyrus Harding, on observing the direction followed by the boat, that they would not attempt to penetrate into the channel, but would land on the islet. Pencroft and Ayrton, each hidden in a narrow cleft of the rock, saw them coming directly towards them, and waited till they were within range. The boat advanced with extreme caution. The oars only dipped into the water at long intervals. It could now be seen that one of the convicts held a lead-line in his hand, and that he wished to fathom the depth of the channel, hollowed out by the current of the Mercy. This showed that it was Bob Harvey's intention to bring his brig as near as possible to the coast. About thirty pirates, scattered in the rigging, followed every movement of the boat, and took the bearings of certain landmarks which would allow them to approach without danger. The boat was not more than two cables' lengths off the islet when she stopped. The man at the tiller stood up and looked for the best place at which to land. At that moment two shots were heard. Smoke curled up from among the rocks of the islet. The man at the helm and the man with the lead-line fell backwards into the boat. Ayrton's and Pencroft's balls had struck them both at the same moment. Almost immediately a louder report was heard. A cloud of smoke issued from the brig's side, and a ball, striking the summit of the rock which sheltered Ayrton and Pencroft, made it fly in splinters, but the two marksmen remained unhurt. Horrible imprecations burst from the boat, which immediately continued its way. The man who had been at the tiller was replaced by one of his comrades, and the oars were rapidly plunged into the water. However, instead of returning on board as might have been expected, the boat coasted along the islet so as to round its southern point. The pirates pulled vigorously at their oars, that they might get out of range of the bullets. They advanced to within five cable-lengths of that part of the shore terminated by Flotsam Point, and after having rounded it in a semicircular line, still protected by the brig's guns, they proceeded towards the mouth of the Mercy. Their evident intention was to penetrate into the channel, and cut off the colonists posted on the islet in such a way that whatever their number might be, being placed between the fire from the boat and the fire from the brig, they would find themselves in a very disadvantageous position. A quarter of an hour passed while the boat advanced in this direction. Absolute silence, perfect calm reigned in the air and on the water. Pencroft and Ayrton, although they knew they ran the risk of being cut off, had not left their post, both that they did not wish to show themselves as yet to their assailants, and expose themselves to the Speedy's guns, and that they relied on Neb and Gideon Spilett, watching at the mouth of the river, and on Cyrus Harding and Herbert in ambush among the rocks at the chimneys. Twenty minutes after the first shots were fired, the boat was less than two cable-lengths off the Mercy. As the tide was beginning to rise with its accustomed violence, 
caused by the narrowness of the straits, the pirates were drawn towards the river, and it was only by dint of hard rowing that they were able to keep in the middle of the channel. But as they were passing within good range of the mouth of the Mercy, two balls saluted them, and two more of their number were laid in the bottom of the boat. Neb and Spilett had not missed their aim. The brig immediately sent a second ball on the post betrayed by the smoke, but without any other result than that of splintering the rock. The boat now contained only three able men. Carried on by the current, it shot through the channel with the rapidity of an arrow, passed before Harding and Herbert, who, not thinking it within range, withheld their fire. Then, rounding the northern point of the islet with the two remaining oars, they pulled towards the brig. Hitherto the settlers had nothing to complain of. Their adversaries had certainly had the worst of it. The latter already counted four men seriously wounded, if not dead. They, on the contrary, unwounded, had not missed a shot. If the pirates continued to attack them in this way, if they renewed their attempt to land by means of a boat, they could be destroyed one by one. It was now seen how advantageous the engineers' arrangements had been. The pirates would think that they had to deal with numerous and well-armed adversaries, whom they could not easily get the better of. Half an hour passed before the boat, having to pull against the current, could get alongside the speedy. Frightful cries were heard when they returned on board with the wounded, and two or three guns were fired, with no results. But now about a dozen other convicts, maddened with rage, and possibly by the effect of the evening's potations, threw themselves into the boat. A second boat was also lowered, in which eight men took their places, and while the first pulled straight for the islet, to dislodge the colonists from thence, the second manoeuvred so as to force the entrance of the Mercy. The situation was evidently becoming very dangerous for Pencroft and Ayrton, and they saw that they must regain the mainland. However, they waited till the first boat was within range, when two well-directed balls threw its crew into disorder. Then Pencroft and Ayrton, abandoning their posts, under fire from the dozen muskets, ran across the islet at full speed, jumped into their boat, crossed the channel at the moment the second boat reached the southern end, and ran to hide themselves in the chimneys. They had scarcely rejoined Cyrus Harding and Herbert before the islet was overrun with pirates in every direction. Almost at the same moment fresh reports resounded from the Mercy Station, to which the second boat was rapidly approaching. Two out of the eight men who manned her were mortally wounded by Gideon Spilett and Neb, and the boat herself, carried irresistibly on to the reefs, was stove in at the mouth of the Mercy. But the six survivors, holding their muskets above their heads to preserve them from contact with the water, managed to land on the right bank of the river. Then, finding they were exposed to the fire of the ambush there, they fled in the direction of Flotsam Point, out of range of the balls. The actual situation was this. On the islet were a dozen convicts, of whom some were no doubt wounded, but who had still a boat at their disposal. On the island were six, but who could not by any possibility reach Granite House, as they could not cross the river, all the bridges being raised. Hallo! exclaimed Pencroft, as he rushed into the chimneys. Hallo, Captain! What do you think of it now?' "'I think,' answered the engineer, 
that the combat will now take a new form, for it cannot be supposed that the convicts will be so foolish as to remain in a position so unfavourable for them. "'They won't cross the channel,' said the sailor. "'Ayrton and Mr. Spillett's rifles are there to prevent them. You know that they carry more than a mile.' "'No doubt,' replied Herbert. "'But what can two rifles do against the brig's guns?' "'Well, the brig isn't in the channel yet, I fancy,' said Pencroft. "'But suppose she does come there,' said Harding. "'That's impossible, for she would risk running aground and being lost.' "'It is possible,' said Ayrton. "'The convicts might profit by the high tide to enter the channel. With the risk of grounding at low tide, it is true. But then, under the fire from her guns—' our posts would be no longer tenable. "'Confound them!' exclaimed Pencroft. "'It really seems as if the blackguards were preparing to weigh anchor.' "'Perhaps we should be obliged to take refuge in Granite House,' observed Herbert. "'We must wait,' answered Cyrus Harding. "'But Mr. Spillard and Neb?' said Pencroft. "'They will know when it is best to rejoin us.' Be ready, Ayrton. It is yours and Spilett's rifles which must speak now. It was only too true. The Speedy was beginning to weigh her anchor, and her intention was evidently to approach the islet. The tide would be rising for an hour and a half, and the ebb current, being already weakened, it would be easy for the brig to advance. But as to entering the channel, Pencroft, contrary to Ayrton's opinion, could not believe that she would dare to attempt it. In the meanwhile, the pirates who occupied the islet had gradually advanced to the opposite shore, and were now only separated from the mainland by the channel. Being armed with muskets alone, they could do no harm to the settlers, in ambush at the chimneys and the mouth of the Mercy, but, not knowing the latter to be supplied with long-range rifles, they on their side did not believe themselves to be exposed. Quite uncovered, therefore, they surveyed the islet and examined the shore. Their illusion was of short duration. Ayrton's and Gideon Spilett's rifles then spoke, and no doubt imparted some very disagreeable intelligence to two of the convicts, for they fell backwards. Then there was a general helter-skelter. The ten others, not even stopping to pick up their dead or wounded companions, fled to the other side of the islet, tumbled into the boat which had brought them, and pulled away with all their strength. Eight less! exclaimed Pencroft. Really, one would have thought that Mr. Spillett and Ayrton had given the word to fire together. Gentlemen, said Ayrton, as he reloaded his gun, this is becoming more serious. The brig is making sail. The anchor is weighed, exclaimed Pencroft. Yes, and she is already moving. In fact, they could distinctly hear the creaking of the windlass. The speedy was at first held by her anchor, then, when that had been raised, she began to drift towards the shore. The wind was blowing from the sea. The jib and the fore-topsail were hoisted, and the vessel gradually approached the island. From the two posts of the Mercy and the Chimneys they watched her without giving a sign of life, but not without some emotion. What could be more terrible for the colonists than to be exposed, at a short distance, to the brig's guns? without being able to reply with any effect. How could they then prevent the pirates from landing? Cyrus Harding felt this strongly, 
and he asked himself what it would be possible to do. Before long he would be called upon for his determination. But what was it to be? To shut themselves up in Granite House, to be besieged there, to remain there for weeks, for months even, since they had an abundance of provisions? So far good, but after that! The pirates would not the less be masters of the island, which they would ravage at their pleasure, and in time they would end by having their revenge on the prisoners in Granite House. However, one chance yet remained. It was that Bob Harvey, after all, would not venture his ship into the channel, and that he would keep outside the islet. He would be still separated from the coast by half a mile, and at that distance his shot could not be very destructive. "'Never!' repeated Pencroft. "'Bob Harvey will never, if he is a good seaman, enter that channel. He knows well that it would risk the brig if the sea got up ever so little. And what would become of him without his vessel?' In the meanwhile the brig approached the islet, and it could be seen that she was endeavouring to make the lower end. The breeze was light, and as the current had then lost much of its force, Bob Harvey had absolute command over his vessel. The route previously followed by the boats had allowed her to reconnoitre the channel, and she boldly entered it. The pirate's design was now only too evident. He wished to bring her broadside to bear on the chimneys, and from there to reply with shell and ball to the shot which had till then decimated her crew. Soon the Speedy reached the point of the islet. She rounded it with ease. The mainsail was braced up, and the brig, hugging the wind, stood across the mouth of the Mercy. "'The scoundrels! They are coming!' said Pencroft. At that moment Cyrus Harding, Ayrton, the sailor, and Herbert were rejoined by Neb and Gideon Spilett. The reporter and his companion had judged it best to abandon the post at the Mercy, from which they could do nothing against the ship, and they had acted wisely. It was better that the colonists should be together at the moment when they were about to engage in a decisive action. Gideon Spillen and Neb had arrived by dodging behind the rocks, though not without attracting a shower of bullets, which had not, however, reached them. "'Spill it! Neb!' cried the engineer. "'You are not wounded?' "'No,' answered the reporter. A few bruises only from the ricochet. But that cursed brig has entered the channel. Yes, replied Pencroft, and in ten minutes she will have anchored before Granite House. Have you formed any plans, Cyrus? asked the reporter. We must take refuge in Granite House while there is still time, and the convicts cannot see us. That is my opinion, too, replied Gideon Spilett. But once shut up— we must be guided by circumstances, said the engineer. Let us be off, then, and make haste, said the reporter. Would you not wish, Captain, that Ayrton and I should remain here? asked the sailor. What would be the use of that, Pencroft? replied Harding. No, we will not separate. There was not a moment to be lost. The colonists left the chimneys. A bend of the cliff prevented them from being seen by those in the brig, but two or three reports, and the crash of bullets on the rock, told them that the Speedy was at no great distance. To spring into the lift, hoist themselves up to the door of Granite House, where Top and Jupe had been shut up since the evening before, 
To rush into the large room was the work of a minute only. It was quite time, for the settlers, through the branches, could see the speedy, surrounded with smoke, gliding up the channel. The firing was incessant, and shot from the four guns struck blindly, both on the mercy post, although it was not occupied, and on the chimneys. The rocks were splintered, and cheers accompanied each discharge. However, they were hoping that Granite House would be spared, thanks to Harding's precaution of concealing the windows, when a shot, piercing the door, penetrated into the passage. "'We are discovered!' exclaimed Pencroft. The colonists had not, perhaps, been seen, but it was certain that Bob Harvey had thought proper to send a ball through the suspected foliage which concealed that part of the cliff. Soon he redoubled his attack, when another ball, having torn away the leafy screen, disclosed a gaping aperture in the granite. The colonists' situation was desperate. Their retreat was discovered. They could not oppose any obstacle to these missiles, nor protect the stone which flew in splinters around them. There was nothing to be done but to take refuge in the upper passage of Granite House, and leave their dwelling to be devastated, when a deep roar was heard, followed by frightful cries. Cyrus Harding and his companion rushed to one of the windows. The brig, irresistibly raised on a sort of water-spout, had just split in two, and in less than ten seconds she was swallowed up with all her criminal crew. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, Part Three, Chapter Four. She is blown up, cried Herbert. Yes, blown up, just as if Ayrton had set fire to the powder returned Pencroft, throwing himself into the lift, together with Neb and the lad. "'But what has happened?' asked Gideon Spilett, quite stunned by this unexpected catastrophe. "'Oh, this time we shall know,' answered the engineer quickly. "'What shall we know?' "'Later, later. Come, Spilett. The main point is that these pirates have been exterminated.' And Cyrus Harding, hurrying away the reporter and Ayrton, joined Pencroft, Neb, and Herbert on the beach. Nothing could be seen of the brig, not even her masts. After having been raised by the water-spout, she had fallen on her side, and had sunk in that position, doubtless in consequence of some enormous leak. But as in that place the channel was not more than twenty feet in depth, it was certain that the sides of the submerged brig would reappear at low water. A few things from the wreck floated on the surface of the water. A raft could be seen consisting of spare spars, coops of poultry with their occupants still living, boxes and barrels, which gradually came to the surface, after having escaped through the hatchways. But no pieces of the wreck appeared, neither planks from the deck nor timber from the hull, which rendered the sudden disappearance of the Speedy perfectly inexplicable. However, the two masts, which had been broken and escaped from the shrouds and stays, came up, and with their sails, some furled, 
and the others spread. But it was not necessary to wait for the tide to bring up these riches, and Ayrton and Pencroft jumped into the boat with the intention of towing the pieces of wreck either to the beach or to the islet. But just as they were shoving off, an observation from Gideon Spilett arrested them. "'What about those six convicts who disembarked on the right bank of the Mercy?' said he. In fact, it would not do to forget that the six men, whose boat had gone to pieces on the rocks, had landed at Flotsam Point. They looked in that direction. None of the fugitives were visible. It was probable that, having seen their vessel engulfed in the channel, they had fled into the interior of the island. "'We will deal with them later,' said Harding. "'As they are armed, they will still be dangerous, but as it is six against six, the chances are equal. To the most pressing business first. Ayrton and Pencroft pulled vigorously towards the wreck. The sea was calm, and the tide very high, as there had been a new moon but two days before. A whole hour at least would elapse before the hull of the brig could emerge from the water of the channel. Ayrton and Pencroft were able to fasten the masts and spars by means of ropes, the ends of which were carried to the beach. There, by the united efforts of the settlers, the pieces of wreck were hauled up. Then the boat picked up all that was floating, coops, barrels, and boxes, which were immediately carried to the chimneys. Several bodies floated also. Among them Ayrton recognized that of Bob Harvey, which he pointed out to his companion, saying with some emotion, "'That is what I have been, Pencroft.' "'But what you are no longer, brave Ayrton!' returned the sailor warmly. It was singular enough that so few bodies floated. Only five or six were counted, which were already being carried by the current towards the open sea. Very probably the convicts had not had time to escape, and the ship lying over on her side, the greater number of them had remained below. Now the current, by carrying the bodies of these miserable men out to sea, would spare the colonists the sad task of burying them in some corner of their island. For two hours Cyrus Harding and his companions were solely occupied in hauling up the spars on to the sand, and then in spreading the sails which were perfectly uninjured to dry. They spoke little, for they were absorbed in their work, but what thoughts occupied their minds? The possession of this brig, or rather all that she contained, was a perfect mine of wealth. In fact, a ship is like a little world in miniature, and the stores of the colony would be increased by a large number of useful articles. It would be, on a large scale, equivalent to the chest found at Flotsam Point. "'And besides,' thought Pencroft, "'why should it be impossible to refloat the brig? If she has only a leak, that may be stopped up. A vessel from three to four hundred tons why, she is a regular ship compared to our Bonaventure, and we could go a long distance in her. We could go anywhere we liked. Captain Harding, Ayrton, and I must examine her. She would be well worth the trouble. In fact, if the brig were still fit to navigate, the colonists' chances of returning to their native land were singularly increased. But to decide this important question— it was necessary to wait until the tide was quite low, so that every part of the brig's hull might be examined. 
When their treasures had been safely conveyed on shore, Harding and his companions agreed to devote some minutes to breakfast. They were almost famished. Fortunately, the larder was not far off, and Neb was noted for being an expeditious cook. They breakfasted, therefore, near the chimneys, and, during their repast, as may be supposed, nothing was talked of but the event which had so miraculously saved the colony. "'Miraculous is the word,' repeated Pencroft, "'for it must be acknowledged that those rascals blew up just at the right moment. Granite House was beginning to be uncomfortable as a habitation.' "'And can you guess, Pencroft,' asked the reporter, "'how it happened, or what can have occasioned the explosion?' "'Oh, Mr. Spilett, nothing is more simple,' answered Pencroft. "'A convict vessel is not disciplined like a man-of-war.' convicts are not sailors. Of course the powder magazine was open, and as they were firing incessantly, some careless or clumsy fellow just blew up the vessel. "'Captain Harding,' said Herbert, "'what astonishes me is that the explosion has not produced more effect. The report was not loud, and besides there are so few planks and timbers torn out. It seems as if the ship had rather foundered than blown up.' "'Does that astonish you, my boy?' asked the engineer. "'Yes, Captain.' "'And it astonishes me also, Herbert,' replied he. "'But when we visit the hull of the brig, we shall no doubt find the explanation of the matter.' "'Why, Captain,' said Pencroft, "'you don't suppose that the Speedy simply foundered like a ship which is struck on a rock?' "'Why not?' observed Neb. "'If there are rocks in the channel.' "'Nonsense, Neb,' answered Pencroft. "'You did not look at the right moment. An instant before she sank, the brig, as I saw perfectly well, rose on an enormous wave, and fell back on her larboard side. Now, if she had only struck, she would have sunk quietly, and gone to the bottom like an honest vessel.' "'It was just because she was not an honest vessel,' returned Neb. "'Well, we shall soon see, Pencroft,' said the engineer. "'We shall soon see,' rejoined the sailor. "'But I would wager my head there are no rocks in the channel. "'Look here, Captain, to speak candidly, "'do you mean to say that there is anything marvellous in the occurrence?' "'Cyrus Harding did not answer. "'At any rate,' said Gideon Spilett, "'whether rock or explosion, "'you will agree, Pencroft, that it occurred just in the nick of time.' "'Yes, yes,' replied the sailor. "'But that is not the question. I ask Captain Harding if he sees anything supernatural in all this.' "'I cannot say, Pencroft,' said the engineer. "'That is all the answer I can make.' A reply which did not satisfy Pencroft at all. He stuck to an explosion, and did not wish to give it up. He would never consent to admit that in that channel with its fine sandy bed, just like the beach, which he had often crossed at low water, there could be an unknown rock. And besides, at the time the brig foundered, it was high water, that is to say, there was enough water to carry the vessel clear over any rocks which would not be uncovered at low tide. Therefore there could not have been a collision. Therefore the vessel had not struck. So she had blown up. 
and it must be confessed that the sailors' arguments were reasonable. Towards half-past one, the colonists embarked in the boat to visit the wreck. It was to be regretted that the brig's two boats had not been saved, but one, as has been said, had gone to pieces at the mouth of the Mercy, and was absolutely useless. The other had disappeared when the brig went down, and had not again been seen, having doubtless been crushed. The hull of the Speedy was just beginning to issue from the water. The brig was lying right over on her side, for her mast being broken, pressed down by the weight of the ballast displaced by the shock, the keel was visible along her whole length. She had been regularly turned over by the inexplicable but frightful submarine action, which had been at the same time manifested by an enormous water-spout. The settlers rowed round the hull, and in proportion as the tide went down, they could ascertain, if not the cause which had occasioned the catastrophe, at least the effect produced. Towards the bows, on both sides of the keel, seven or eight feet from the beginning of the stem, the sides of the brig were frightfully torn. Over a length of at least twenty feet there opened two large leaks, which would be impossible to stop up. Not only had the copper sheathing and the planks disappeared, reduced no doubt to powder, but also the ribs, the iron bolts, and tree-nails which united them. From the entire length of the hull to the stern the false keel had been separated with an unaccountable violence, and the keel itself, torn from the carline in several places, was split in all its length. "'I've a notion,' exclaimed Pencroft, "'that this vessel will be difficult to get afloat again.' "'It will be impossible,' said Ayrton. "'At any rate,' observed Gideon Spilett to the sailor, the explosion, if there has been one, has produced singular effects. It has split the lower part of the hull, instead of blowing up the deck and topsides. These great rents appear rather to have been made by a rock than by the explosion of a powder magazine. "'There is not a rock in the channel,' answered the sailor. "'I will admit anything you like, except the rock.' "'Let us try to penetrate into the interior of the brig,' said the engineer. "'Perhaps we shall then know what to think of the cause of her destruction.' This was the best thing to be done, and it was agreed, besides, to take an inventory of all the treasures on board, and to arrange for their preservation. Access to the interior of the brig was now easy. The tide was still going down, and the deck was practicable. The ballast, composed of heavy masses of iron, had broken through in several places. The noise of the sea could be heard as it rushed out at the holes in the hull. Cyrus Harding and his companions, hatchets in hand, advanced along the shattered deck. Cases of all sorts encumbered it, and, as they had been but a very short time in the water, their contents were perhaps uninjured. They then busied themselves in placing all this cargo in safety. The water would not return for several hours, and these hours must be employed in the most profitable way. Ayrton and Pencroft had, at the entrance made in the hull, discovered tackle, which would serve to hoist up the barrels and chests. The boat received them, and transported them to the shore. 
They took the articles as they came, intending to sort them afterwards. At any rate, the settlers saw at once, with extreme satisfaction, that the brig possessed a very varied cargo, an assortment of all sorts of articles, utensils, manufactured goods, and tools, such as the ships which make the great coasting trade of Polynesia are usually laden with. It was probable that they would find a little of everything, and they agreed that it was exactly what was necessary for the colony of Lincoln Island. However, and Cyrus Harding observed it in silent astonishment, not only, as has been said, had the hull of the brig enormously suffered from the shock, whatever it was, that had occasioned the catastrophe, but the interior arrangements had been destroyed, especially towards the bows. Partitions and stanchions were smashed, as if some tremendous shell had burst in the interior of the brig. The colonists could easily go fore and aft, after having removed the cases as they were extricated. They were not heavy bales, which would have been difficult to remove, but simple packages, of which the stowage, besides, was no longer recognizable. The colonists then reached the stern of the brig, the part formerly surmounted by the poop. It was there that, following Ayrton's directions, they must look for the powder magazine. Cyrus Harding thought that it had not exploded, that it was possible some barrels might be saved, and that the powder, which is usually enclosed in metal coverings, might not have suffered from contact with water. This, in fact, was just what had happened. They extricated from among a large number of shot twenty barrels, the insides of which were lined with copper. Pencroft was convinced, by the evidence of his own eyes, that the destruction of the Speedy could not be attributed to an explosion. That part of the hull in which the magazine was situated was, moreover, that which had suffered least. "'It may be so,' said the obstinate sailor. "'But as to a rock, there is not one in the channel.' "'Then how did it happen?' asked Herbert. "'I don't know,' answered Pencroft. "'Captain Harding doesn't know, and nobody knows, or ever will know.' Several hours had passed during these researches, and the tide began to flow. Work must be suspended for the present. There was no fear of the brig being carried away by the sea, for she was already fixed as firmly as if moored by her anchors. They could, therefore, without inconvenience, wait until the next day to resume operations. But, as to the vessel herself, she was doomed, and it would be best to hasten to save the remains of her hull, as she would not be long in disappearing in the quicksands of the channel. It was now five o'clock in the evening. It had been a hard day's work for the men. They ate with good appetite, and, notwithstanding their fatigue, they could not resist, after dinner, their desire of inspecting the cases which composed the cargo of the Speedy. Most of them contained clothes, which, as may be believed, were well received. There was enough to clothe a whole colony, linen for everyone's use, shoes for everyone's feet. "'We are too rich!' exclaimed Pencroft. "'But what are we going to do with all this?' 
and every moment burst forth the hurrahs of the delighted sailor when he caught sight of the barrels of gunpowder, firearms, and sidearms, balls of cotton, implements of husbandry, carpenters, joiners, and blacksmith's tools, and boxes of all kinds of seeds, not in the least injured by their short sojourn in the water. Ah, two years before, how these things would have been prized! And now, even though the industrious colonists had provided themselves with tools, these treasures would find their use. There was no want of space in the storerooms of Granite House, but that daytime would not allow them to stow away the whole. It would not do also to forget that the six survivors of the Speedy's crew had landed on the island, for they were in all probability scoundrels of the deepest dye, and it was necessary that the colonists should be on their guard against them. Although the bridges over the Mercy were raised, the convicts would not be stopped by a river or a stream, and rendered desperate, these wretches would be capable of anything. They would see later what plan it would be best to follow, but in the meantime it was necessary to mount guard over cases and packages heaped up near the chimneys, and thus the settlers employed themselves in turn during the night. The morning came, however, without the convicts having attempted any attack. Master Jupe and Top, on guard at the foot of Granite House, would have quickly given the alarm. The three following days, the 19th, 20th, and 21st of October, were employed in saving everything of value, or of any use whatever, either from the cargo or rigging of the brig. At low tide they overhauled the hold, at high tide they stowed away the rescued articles. A great part of the copper sheathing had been torn from the hull, which every day sank lower but before the sand had swallowed the heavy things which had fallen through the bottom, Ayrton and Pencroft, diving to the bed of the channel, recovered the chains and anchors of the brig, the iron of her ballast, and even four guns, which, floated by means of empty casks, were brought to shore. It may be seen that the arsenal of the colony had gained by the wreck, as well as the storerooms of Granite House. Pencroft, always enthusiastic in his projects, already spoke of constructing a battery to command the channel and the mouth of the river. With four guns he engaged to prevent any fleet, however powerful it might be, from venturing into the waters of Lincoln Island. In the meantime, when nothing remained of the brig but a useless hulk, bad weather came on, which soon finished her. Cyrus Harding had intended to blow her up, so as to collect the remains on the shore, but a strong gale from the northeast and a heavy sea compelled him to economize his powder. In fact, on the night of the twenty-third, the hull entirely broke up, and some of the wreck was cast up on the beach. As to the papers on board, it is useless to say that, although he carefully searched the lockers of the poop, Harding did not discover any trace of them. The pirates had evidently destroyed everything that concerned either the captain or the owners of the Speedy, and as the name of her port was not painted on her counter, there was nothing which would tell them her nationality. However, by the shape of her boats, Ayrton and Pencroft believed that the brig was of English build. A week after the catastrophe, 
or rather after the fortunate though inexplicable event to which the colony owed its preservation nothing more could be seen of the vessel even at low tide the wreck had disappeared and granite house was enriched by nearly all it had contained however the mystery which enveloped its strange destruction would doubtless never have been cleared away if on the thirtieth of november neb strolling on the beach had not found a piece of a thick iron cylinder bearing traces of explosion the edges of this cylinder were twisted and broken as if they had been subjected to the action of some explosive substance neb brought this piece of metal to his master who was then occupied with his companions in the workshop of the chimneys cyrus harding examined the cylinder attentively then turning to pencroft you persist my friend said he in maintaining that the speedy was not lost in consequence of a collision yes captain answered the sailor you know as well as i do that there are no rocks in the channel but suppose she had run against this piece of iron said the engineer showing the broken cylinder why that bit of pipe exclaimed pencroft in a tone of perfect incredulity my friends resumed harding you remember that before she foundered the brig rose on the summit of a regular water-spout yes captain replied herbert well would you like to know what occasioned that water-spout it was this said the engineer holding up the broken tube that returned pencroft yes this cylinder is all that remains of a torpedo a torpedo exclaimed the engineer's companions and who put the torpedo there demanded pencroft who did not like to yield all that i can tell you is that it was not i answered cyrus harding but it was there and you have been able to judge of its incomparable power End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Part 3. Chapter 5. So then, all was explained by the submarine explosion of this torpedo. Cyrus Harding could not be mistaken, as, during the War of the Union, he had had occasion to try these terrible engines of destruction. It was under the action of this cylinder, charged with some explosive substance, nitroglycerin, picrate, or some other material of the same nature, that the water of the channel had been raised like a dome, the bottom of the brig crushed in, and she had sunk instantly, the damage done to her hull being so considerable that it was impossible to refloat her. The Speedy had not been able to withstand a torpedo that would have destroyed an ironclad as easily as a fishing-boat. Yes, all was explained, everything, except the presence of the torpedo in the waters of the channel. My friends, then, said Cyrus Harding, we can no longer be in doubt as to the presence of a mysterious being 
a castaway like us, perhaps, abandoned on our island, and I say this in order that Ayrton may be acquainted with all the strange events which have occurred during these two years. Who this beneficent stranger is, whose intervention has, so fortunately for us, been manifested on many occasions, I cannot imagine. What his object can be in acting thus, in concealing himself after rendering us so many services, I cannot understand. But his services are not the less real, and are of such a nature that only a man possessed of prodigious power could render them. Ayrton is indebted to him as much as we are, for, if it was the stranger who saved me from the waves after the fall from the balloon, evidently it was he who wrote the document, who placed the bottle in the channel, and who has made known to us the situation of our companion. I will add that it was he who guided that chest, provided with everything we wanted, and stranded it on Flotsam Point, that it was he who lighted that fire on the heights of the island which permitted you to land, that it was he who fired that bullet found in the body of the peccary, that it was he who plunged that torpedo into the channel which destroyed the brig, in a word, that all those inexplicable events, for which we could not assign a reason, are due to this mysterious being. Therefore, whoever he may be, whether shipwrecked or exiled on our island, we shall be ungrateful if we think ourselves freed from gratitude towards him. We have contracted a debt, and I hope that we shall one day pay it. "'You are right in speaking thus, my dear Cyrus,' replied Gideon Spilett. "'Yes, there is an almost all-powerful being, hidden in some part of the island, and whose influence has been singularly useful to our colony.' I will add that the unknown appears to possess means of action which border on the supernatural, if in the events of practical life the supernatural were recognizable. Is it he who is in secret communication with us by the well in Granite House, and has he thus a knowledge of all our plans? Was it he who threw us that bottle when the vessel made her first cruise? Was it he who threw Top out of the lake and killed the dugong? Was it he who, as everything leads us to believe, saved you from the waves, and that under circumstances in which any one else would not have been able to act? If it was he, he possesses a power which renders him master of the elements. The reporter's reasoning was just, and every one felt it to be so. Yes, rejoined Cyrus Harding, if the intervention of a human being is not more questionable for us, I agree that he has at his disposal means of action beyond those possessed by humanity. There is a mystery still, but if we discover the man, the mystery will be discovered also. The question, then, is, ought we to respect the incognito of this generous being, or ought we to do everything to find him out? What is your opinion on the matter? My opinion, said Pencroft, is that, whoever he may be, he is a brave man, and he has my esteem. Be it so, answered Harding. But that is not an answer, Pencroft. Master, then said Neb, my idea is that we may search as long as we like for this gentleman whom you are talking about, but that we shall not discover him till he pleases. That's not bad what you say, Neb, observed Pencroft. 
"'I am of Neb's opinion,' said Gideon Spilett. "'But that is no reason for not attempting the adventure.' "'Whether we find this mysterious being or not, we shall at least have fulfilled our duty towards him.' "'And you, my boy, give us your opinion,' said the engineer, turning to Herbert. "'Oh!' cried Herbert, his countenance full of animation. "'How I should like to thank him, he who saved you first, and who has now saved us!' "'Of course, my boy,' replied Pencroft. "'So would I and all of us. I am not inquisitive, but I would give one of my eyes to see this individual face to face. It seems to me that he must be handsome, tall, strong, with a splendid beard, radiant hair, that he must be seated on clouds, a great ball in his hands.' "'But, Pencroft,' answered Spilett, "'you are describing a picture of the Creator.' "'Possibly, Mr. Spilett,' replied the sailor. "'But that is how I imagine him.' "'And you, Ayrton?' asked the engineer. "'Captain Harding,' replied Ayrton, "'I can give you no better advice in this matter. Whatever you do will be best.' when you wish me to join you in your researches, I am ready to follow you." "'I thank you, Ayrton,' answered Cyrus Harding. "'But I should like a more direct answer to the question I put to you. You are our companion. You have already endangered your life several times for us, and you, as well as the rest, ought to be consulted in the matter of any important decision. Speak, therefore.' "'Captain Harding,' replied Ayrton, I think that we ought to do everything to discover this unknown benefactor. Perhaps he is alone. Perhaps he is suffering. Perhaps he has a life to be renewed. I, too, as you said, have a debt of gratitude to pay him. It was he. It could be only he who must have come to Tabor Island, who found there the wretch you knew and who made known to you that there was an unfortunate man there to be saved? Therefore it is, thanks to him, that I have become a man again. No, I will never forget him." "'That is settled, then,' said Cyrus Harding. "'We will begin our researches as soon as possible. We will not leave a corner of the island unexplored. We will search into its most secret recesses and will hope that our unknown friend will pardon us in consideration of our intentions." For several days the colonists were actively employed in hay-making and the harvest. Before putting their project of exploring the yet unknown parts of the island into execution, they wished to get all possible work finished. It was also the time for collecting the various vegetables from the Tabor Island plants. All was stowed away and happily there was no want of room in the Granite House, in which they might have housed all the treasures of the island. The products of the colony were there, methodically arranged, and in a safe place, as may be believed, sheltered as much from animals as from man. There was no fear of damp in the middle of that thick mass of granite. Many natural excavations situated in the upper passage were enlarged either by pickaxe or mine and Granite House thus became a general warehouse, containing all the provisions, arms, tools, and spare utensils, in a word, all the stores of the colony. As to the guns obtained from the brig, they were pretty pieces of ordnance, which, at Pencroft's entreaty, were hoisted by means of tackle and pulleys right up into Granite House. 
embrasures were made between the windows, and the shining muzzles of the guns could soon be seen through the granite cliff. From this height they commanded all Union Bay. It was like a little Gibraltar, and any vessel anchored off the islet would inevitably be exposed to the fire of this aerial battery. "'Captain,' said Pencroft one day, it was the 8th of November, "'now that our fortifications are finished, it would be a good thing if we tried the range of our guns.' "'Do you think that is useful?' asked the engineer. "'It is more than useful. It is necessary. Without that, how are we to know to what distance we can send one of those pretty shot with which we are provided?' "'Try them, Pencroft,' replied the engineer. "'However, I think that in making the experiment we ought to employ not the ordinary powder, the supply of which, I think, should remain untouched, but the pyroxyl which will never fail us.' "'Can the cannon support the shock of the pyroxyl?' asked the reporter, who was not less anxious than Pencroft to try the artillery of Granite House. "'I believe so. However,' added the engineer, "'we will be prudent.' The engineer was right in thinking that the guns were of excellent make. Made of forged steel and breech-loaders, they ought consequently to be able to bear a considerable charge, and also have an enormous range. In fact, as regards practical effect, the transit described by the ball ought to be as extended as possible, and this tension could only be obtained under the condition that the projectile should be impelled with a very great initial velocity. Now, said Harding to his companions, the initial velocity is in proportion to the quantity of powder used. In the fabrication of these pieces, everything depends on employing a metal with the highest possible power of resistance, and steel is incontestably that metal of all others which resists the best. I have, therefore, reason to believe that our guns will bear without risk the expansion of the pyroxyl gas, and will give excellent results. We shall be a great deal more certain of that when we have tried them, answered Pencroft. It is unnecessary to say that the four cannons were in perfect order. Since they had been taken from the water, the sailor had bestowed great care upon them. How many hours he had spent in rubbing, greasing, and polishing them, and in cleaning the mechanism! And now the pieces were as brilliant as if they had been on board a frigate of the United States Navy. On this day, therefore, in presence of all the members of the colony, including Master Jup and Top, the four cannon were successively tried. They were charged with pyroxyl, taking into consideration its explosive power, which, as has been said, is four times that of ordinary powder. The projectile to be fired was cylindroconic. Pencroft, holding the end of the quick match, stood ready to fire. At Harding's signal, he fired. The shot, passing over the islet, fell into the sea at a distance which could not be calculated with exactitude. The second gun was pointed at the rocks at the end of Flotsam Point, and the shot, striking a sharp rock nearly three miles from Granite House, made it fly into splinters. It was Herbert who had pointed this gun and fired it, and very proud he was of his first shot. Pencroft only was prouder than he. Such a shot, the honor of which belonged to his dear boy. The third shot, aimed this time at the downs forming the upper side of Union Bay, struck the sand at a distance of four miles, 
then having ricocheted, was lost in the sea in a cloud of spray. For the fourth piece Cyrus Harding slightly increased the charge, so as to try its extreme range. Then, all standing aside for fear of its bursting, the match was lighted by means of a long cord. A tremendous report was heard, but the piece had held good, and the colonists rushing to the windows saw the shot graze the rocks of Mandible Cape, nearly five miles from Granite House, and disappear in Shark Gulf. "'Well, Captain!' exclaimed Pencroft, whose cheers might have rivaled the reports themselves. "'What do you say of our battery? All the pirates in the Pacific have only to present themselves before Granite House. Not one can land there now without our permission.' "'Believe me, Pencroft,' replied the engineer, "'it would be better not to have to make the experiment.' "'Well,' said the sailor, "'what ought to be done with regard to those six villains who are roaming about the island? Are we to leave them to overrun our forests, our fields, our plantations? These pirates are regular jaguars, and it seems to me we ought not to hesitate to treat them as such. What do you think, Ayrton?' added Pencroft, turning to his companion. Ayrton hesitated at first to reply, and Cyrus Harding regretted that Pencroft had so thoughtlessly put this question. And he was much moved when Ayrton replied in a humble tone, "'I have been one of those jaguars, Mr. Pencroft. I have no right to speak.' And with a slow step he walked away. Pencroft understood. "'What a brute I am!' he exclaimed. "'Poor Ayrton! He has as much right to speak here as any one.' "'Yes,' said Gideon Spilett but his reserve does him honour, and it is right to respect the feeling which he has about his sad past. "'Certainly, Mr. Spilett,' answered the sailor, "'and there is no fear of my doing so again. I would rather bite my tongue off than cause Ayrton any pain. But, to return to the question, it seems to me that these ruffians have no right to any pity, and that we ought to rid the island of them as soon as possible.' "'Is that your opinion, Pencroft?' asked the engineer. "'Quite my opinion.' "'And before hunting them mercilessly, you would not wait until they had committed some fresh act of hostility against us?' "'Isn't what they have done already enough?' asked Pencroft, who did not understand these scruples. "'They may adopt other sentiments,' said Harding, "'and perhaps repent.' "'They repent!' exclaimed the sailor shrugging his shoulders. "'Pencroft, think of Ayrton,' said Herbert, taking the sailor's hand. "'He became an honest man again.' Pencroft looked at his companions one after the other. He had never thought of his proposal being met with any objection. His rough nature could not allow that they ought to come to terms with the rascals who had landed on the island, with Bob Harvey's accomplices, the murderers of the crew of the Speedy and he looked upon them as wild beasts which ought to be destroyed without delay and without remorse. "'Come,' said he, "'everybody is against me. You wish to be generous to those villains. Very well. I hope we mayn't repent it.' "'What danger shall we run,' said Herbert, "'if we take care to be always on our guard?' "'Hm,' observed the reporter, who had not given any decided opinion. They are six and well-armed. If they each lay hid in a corner, 
and each fired at one of us, they would soon be masters of the colony. "'Why have they not done so?' said Herbert. "'No doubt because it was not their interest to do it. Besides, we are six also.' "'Well, well,' replied Pencroft, whom no reasoning could have convinced. "'Let us leave these good people to do what they like, and don't think anything more about them.' "'Come, Pencroft,' said Neb. "'Don't make yourself out so bad as all that. "'Suppose one of these unfortunate men were here before you, "'within good range of your gun. "'You would not fire.' "'I would fire on him as I would on a mad dog, Neb,' replied Pencroft coldly. "'Pencroft,' said the engineer, "'you have always shown much deference to my advice. "'Will you, in this matter, yield to me?' "'I will do as you please, Captain Harding,' answered the sailor, who was not at all convinced. "'Very well. Wait, and we will not attack them unless we are attacked first. Thus their behavior towards the pirates was agreed upon, although Pencroft augured nothing good from it. They were not to attack them, but were to be on their guard. After all, the island was large and fertile.' If any sentiment of honesty yet remained in the bottom of their hearts, these wretches might perhaps be reclaimed. Was it not their interest in the situation in which they found themselves to begin a new life? At any rate, for humanity's sake alone, it would be right to wait. The colonists would no longer as before be able to go and come without fear. Hitherto they had only wild beasts to guard against and now six convicts of the worst description, perhaps, were roaming over their island. It was serious, certainly, and to less brave men it would have been security lost. No matter. At present the colonists had reason on their side against Pencroft. Would they be right in the future? That remained to be seen. End of chapter.